How is uh, sunny California? It's great. I mean, it was snowing in Montreal this week before I left, <laughs> which is just climate chaos. And then I got here and it was a heat wave, so it's great. Uh, so anyway, you are out there. I don't know what else you're doing, but I know yesterday you were at the grand opening of the new, uh, or I, I guess it's not really the grand opening. I guess that's tomorrow, but yeah. the, the sort of preview opening of the new flagship Apple store in uh, uh, San Francisco, right off, right at the top of the hill at Union Square. Yeah, it, it was. they did a sort of a preview event. It's opening officially on Saturday. It's when the general public can go and just we'll see how he, like, normal people react to the store, especially when they're at capacity. But they had a small event yesterday with Angela Aarons, which was very nice. So uh, tell me about it. Well, the thing that... The thing that was remarkable to me up front is they brought us in and, you know, they said Angela was going to speak. And we, there was all this internet stuff previously about, you know, why is Apple hiding Angela Aarons? Angela Aarons, why, why isn't Apple showcasing her? Why isn't she on the stage? Uh, is she even around anymore? And you, you knew that that was bullshit because you see her on campus. Like, she's a presence at Apple. She's everywhere. She does phenomenal work. Um, but she came out and it was very similar to how I remember Johnny Ive coming out for the Unibody MacBook event many years ago where she said, you know, flatly, this is not her favorite thing to do. Uh, and she asked for like a bottle of water and she got talking and it's just like, uh, she's so passionate that she wanted to do this, but clearly you know, being on an Apple keynote, keynote stage is not top of her personal list of things. Oh, interesting. I, d- I wouldn't have, you know, it's, you know, maybe that's the, the simple explanation for why we haven't seen her on stage more often that she doesn't want uh, to be. Just like Johnny, I mean, right. like not everyone wants to do that stuff. Yeah, I think people, uh, you know, for all of the, uh, and some of it, you know, certainly warranted all of the uh, debate over, you know, the diversity of the people who are on stage at Apple events. It's easy to overlook the fact that a lot of people really, not just don't like it, but really have like uh, uh, uh it's just it's 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 so stressful to go and speak in front of an audience that it's you know it it's undesirable you know they just don't want to do it. Yeah, or they work. I mean, like Craig Federici, he was not great the first year he did it, but he's he got better and better every year at it. And some of that is just they're going to have to get you know give people that time and those opportunities and maybe smaller events like this is a good way to do it. So they can sort of get comfortable with it and then become very good at those at those jobs. There's that. Uh... I think it's Malcolm Gladwell who's got this theory that it takes 10,000 hours yeah. to get good at something, um, which, you know, roll your eyes because it's Malcolm Gladwell and it's sort of anecdotal. But with Craig Federici, it's like he needed like an hour and a half. Yes. <laughs> he he needed like – like he had like one – his first time he came back was – I think it was the Back to the Mac uh, mm-hmm. event. It was at Town Hall. I was not there. I, w- I actually watched that one remotely. Um, and his – he was doing the demos of these features on a Mac and his hands were literally shaking. Like he couldn't, he, he really couldn't do the mousing required to, to do the demo. He was like clicking wrong because his hands were so shaky. Uh, it was almost hard to watch as uh, you know, it's it, unless, you know, it, it's hard to watch somebody who's that nervous speaking. Uh, then like the next time he came out, he was much better. And then by the third time he did an event, he's like, wow, he, he might be the best public speaker in the company. Yeah, it was phenomenal, and they they had um, I'm blanking on her name right now, but the woman who the vice president of Apple Pay was just phenomenal first time out. Yeah, uh, and the person covering news really good too. I mean, make jokes about Smudge Sports Illustrated, phenomenal, uh, and and that kind of stuff. I'm really eager to see more of. Yeah. Um. So tell me about the store itself. 
So what I loved about this is that in typical Apple fashion, I mean, most companies would just they would give anything to have a business like Apple Store. Never mind a business like Apple. It just it, it's such a valuable property. It does so many so many billions of dollars in transactions. Really a beloved retail experience. And messing with that is super scary because you do anything wrong, you risk damaging that business, and that's that's big business for Apple. But they they don't just oh, I think we'll make the Genius Bar three inches longer, we'll change the wood, we'll do all these incremental things to improve them, we'll make the quality of the screens better. They rethought everything from the beginning. So it was Angela Aaron's team and Johnny Ives' team and the companies that they worked with, and they, they brought everything back to the essence. And it wasn't, you know, do we keep the theaters or do we axe the theaters or do we do something with the Genius Bar? It's what is our core principle? What governs what we're going to do with Apple stores? And she mentioned that Apple Store is the biggest product that Apple ships you know, to customers and uh, they've, they've had a long history, but Apple Online now does so much. People can just go there and order, uh, and they don't necessarily have to go to stores anymore to do that. And likewise, support.apple.com and Apple support on Twitter handle a lot of the low-level queries now. So if you just have a software issue or you just need help or, or how-to information, they handle all that. So it's not necessary for the Genius Bars to, to do the same load they used to do. So they wanted to figure out what made the Apple Store relevant to customers these days, what would make them actually want to go there. And they settled on this overarching theme of community, that the Apple Store could be the central hub of the Apple community. And it starts with those giant 40-foot doors on both sides that, yeah, make your Apple Car drive through jokes. But they really want to be able to open up the entire store and make it part of that block, almost like a, a, an open-air market. Interesting. I, I, you know, and I, I can definitely say here in Philadelphia, I, I tend to walk by the, you know, it's just a, in a busy retail area. So no surprise that I end up walking by the Apple store a lot. Um, and, you know, like most Apple stores, always, almost always very, pretty crowded. And it's definitely not just people who are shopping for things. I mean, there are definitely people who just go in to hang out, you know, check their email and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and and they're taking that uh, whole approach and they're applying it to everything. So there's a giant screen now. And if people remember, there used to be a movie theater at the old uh, Union Square store. But now they have this giant 6K display and it looked seamless to me. It looked like it was actually one display and I immediately just wanted to take it home, but they don't sell it. (laughs) Uh, And and that's right in the middle of what they call Forum now. And Forum has these little box uh, and ball seats that you can sit on and they can make it one big room where a developer or an expert can come and give a talk, but they can also split it up into small areas so you can have several people doing smaller talks at the same time and the screen can be used for presentations but also just shows information and all the iconography is exactly like iOS and it uses uh, San Francisco as a typeface so it, it was built to be an Apple product like what would an Apple what would iOS look like running on a 6k display is exactly what you'd expect with this <laughs> uh, yeah I think those big displays are part of the I mean and every you know a lot of these stores are uh, have to fit the existing space. They can't just say, here's the dimensions that we want. It's, you know, we're in a historic building here. So, you know, here's, you know, here's what we have to work with. But those big displays are definitely part of the new uh, store design. Yeah, and they took the Genius Bar and they said, you know, Genius Bar, it's got some negative connotations, like it's loud, it's noisy, people are elbowing, everyone's fighting for their chance to get to the Genius Bartender, uh, and it's not the experience they want to give anymore, especially now that a lot of the software and and basic help and how-to stuff has moved online. So now they have the Genius Grove, which is right up front in the store, not in the back anymore, and it's part of of that area where the forum is with a lot of these open tables and open seating uh, and those trees that people might have seen at the Belgium store previously, and you can just go and sit there and get help with your Mac or iPhone or iPad for hardware issues or, or other things that they can't solve online and not feel sort of crowded around the little table anymore. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting that they would move that to the front. 
the whole thing was was super interesting. They have a boardroom there, and I don't know. They, they said like some of these features will move to other stores, and some of them they've tried already. But there's something called boardroom, where it's Apple's approaching enterprise and big business with Oracle partnerships and IBM partnerships. But for smaller businesses, for entrepreneurs, uh, for VCs, for for sort of the Kickstarter stuff, they have boardroom now where people can go in and not only get help with that, but also network and make connections. And they were saying that it's such a that part of San Francisco is so rich with that kind of culture that they wanted a nexus, almost like an Apple-centric nexus for them. Hmm. And that became the boardroom area. Hmm. Uh, and the retail stuff was super interesting, too, because they have the Avenue now. So the Avenue, they used to have those accessories, but if anyone has seen pictures of the new Infinite Loop store uh, or the new store in New York, and I think the one in Belgium, too, it, they've got these these panes. Instead of just having cases, like there's cases on shelves, and you see the individual cases. So they have it's an avenue, and you have almost like little boutiques called windows, where there's different sets of accessories, like cases and photography equipment and music. And they have a new Apple job there called the uh, Creative Pro. And the Creative Pro's job is to help you. You're supposed to touch everything, try everything, sample everything. And if you need help, they'll show you the basics. If you don't know anything, the basics of photography or music. But they can also go up to and including lessons on Final Cut Pro or Logic Pro if you want to take that, that next step up. And they really want to make that sort of your introduction to Apple experience. And it really is the whole back of the store is just one long run for that. Hmm. So what do you think? Do you think it's an improvement? It's just an evolution it's it's super interesting because the last thing I didn't mention is that they also have this garden, this neglected area. They've turned into a garden where it's twenty four seven Wi Fi with seating, uh, and it can fit up to two hundred people. And it's it's interesting as an experiment. And I like that Apple is not just doing that incremental thing; that they're willing to take risks with this. That you know Johnny Ive and um, Angela Irons are passionate about this. It'll be interesting to see how people react to it. Uh, usually, you go into an Apple store and you just see like dozens of kids around a machine trying to use Facebook. Uh, or something like that. But this this really does seem like a place where people like us, we're, we're really good at, at handling Apple technology. We only go there if we break our screen or something. You know, we need a logic board or play something. Something really serious happens. But for a lot of people, um, I feel totally alienated going into a lot of stores. Like I go into a liquor store and I've got to text you or, or somebody for <laughs> advice. I just have no idea what I'm doing. And I feel bad. I feel anxious and a little bit embarrassed and dumb. And for a lot of people, that's what technology is like. And if they can go to an Apple store and you know, get greeted and get help and get shown things and learn things. And I think it de-stresses all that. And it shows that Apple really is playing the long game still. It's not like they don't want to bring you in there and hustle you and force you to buy a case just to, to get a quick sale. They want to make that Apple brand super important to you so that even if you don't need something now, if you're just curious, you'll think that Apple's just a great experience. And when you do want something, that, that's exactly where you're going to go. Yeah, I do think, you know, in the it's funny looking back because at this point, like the Apple stores being ubiquitous i mean they're they're pretty much everywhere and being successful it's been long enough that we just take it for granted that going back to when they first started it it was widely panned and you know it's, it's there's like a massive file of claim chowder in my bookmarks of yes. people who were predicting doom you know because every other computer company that had ever tried their own branded stores before failed miserably i mean gateway isn't even a company anymore no yeah totally <laughs> And it's just it just gets to the heart of why Apple is not like other computer companies. I mean, and part of it is um, just as simple as the fact that they do hardware and software, which sounds like, well, come on, that's not that big a deal. But it just it it it's not necessarily because they do hardware and software. It's the what makes Apple different is why they do hardware and software. Right. I would say that the fact that they do the hardware and software is the result of, you know, it's the effect 
and that the cause is just the way that Apple approaches this stuff is different, and their stores are emblematic of that. Uh, absolutely. If you look at Apple, the consistent theme from the from the Apple II all the way to something like an uh, an Apple Watch or or an Apple TV is the mainstreaming of computing technology, the democratization of access to ubiquitous computing. And the Apple Store is like that. It's, it's a way to, it's a way to reach people, and it's a way to make people uh, want to imp- sort of get get make this. And you've called it this before, like this affordable luxury where. Technology shouldn't be just kept to a, full, to a small few people, and it shouldn't be something that's off-putting or inaccessible uh, or something that makes you feel bad about yourself. It should be something that everybody can use to enhance their lives. And Apple, people will debate, is it a hardware, hardware company, software company? It's really a product company. They make wonderful products because they want to give you a great experience. And this is absolutely an extension of that. I do think there's – it's pretty clear that the, the, the architectural evolution of the Apple Store has, has gotten a lot more – humane i would say where the original design was sort of like being inside a probably at the time it was a power book you know there were it was sort of like an uh, aluminum walls and it was you know almost utilitarian yeah it was a very uh not quite like you're in a sci-fi movie but futuristic and definitely forward thinking and a little cold a little clean and you know utilitarian is a good way to put it um and the the stores got warmer when they started going more towards wood and getting away from the metal walls. And I know most or all of the original Apple stores that had that first look, all of them, I think, have at at one point or another been shut down to be renovated, to be updated to the more humane look. But this new look, which is sort of like a 3.0, is downright organic. I mean, there are actual plants you know on the walls and, and there's trees in the middle of right the and if the stores are big enough they even have trees and this one has a garden wall uh, the only thing that was curious to me is they they don't have the glowing logo anymore that we were so used to and seeing on the stores they now actually have something that's like the embedded stainless steel logo that you'd see on a macbook or an iphone or an ipad and that's it's big and it's space gray and it's right on the side of the building yeah, so it's not on the front of the building it's on the side well, I'm not sure what is actually the front because you have those two big doors. Mm. You have the front and the back door, and those take up the entire walls. They're 40 foot uh, doors. So then, in between those, on the other side, you have the giant Apple logo. Hmm. Somebody who's uh, <laughs> selling big pieces of glass is making a lot of money from Apple. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially considering campus too. Like exactly higher at this point. <laughs> oh man, um, I, I guess my only worry with the Apple Store is that the I. I if I have to play devil's advocate, I worry that maybe they're getting a little um, unfocused. That maybe mm-hmm. you know that that shouldn't there be a focus to this? And I would say that originally the focus was very simple. It was to let people come in and see and play and touch Apple products because it's the best way. And and I think this was a lot more important in the early parts of the last decade. You know, let's say the, the the when people called them the iPod company, because people didn't know Apple products because they were you know had relative to now so many you know or an order of magnitude fewer customers, maybe two orders of magnitude fewer customers, and the thing that makes Apple products desirable is are things that you really have to see them and use it yourself to see how nice they are. Like you can say that something is that. You know, this iPod is nicer than other music players, but you really have to use it and see how it feels when you spin the, the you know, the, the wheel, the click wheel 
or uh, in the modern time to just load a web page and see how how much better the trackpad is than the Windows trackpad you might be used to, etc. And you go through like you can't just say, "Hey, Macs have much nicer trackpads than the crappy Windows machine you're used to." Uh, you can say it, but it's, it's seeing is believing. And that was the purpose of the stores. Let people see these things, make it easy to buy them. And once you have them, make it easy to get help with them. And that was it. And now I feel like by making it a community hub, I wonder if, if they're, you know, just again, to play devil's advocate, is it worrisome that they're maybe losing focus? So I think that's that's absolutely valid. I'm wondering how much of the community focus is actually the sugar candy coating on this because you, you sort of go through those three stages you meant you mentioned where Apple stores became a place where you could go buy Apple products and that was perfect timing. It was one of the few one of the many things that was the confluence that led to iPhone becoming the astronomical business that it was. Uh, and Apple made iPhone super available at the Apple stores. But then there was this whole move towards the halo effect where once you got an iPhone, that was sort of your gateway to Apple. And then there was the back to my Mac event. And once you have an iPhone, you'd go to the Apple store and maybe you'd get a Mac or you'd get an iPad. But now we're getting to a point where these products are so mature that they have to start looking for extra markets and that there is Apple Watch and Apple TV. And those sort of become satellites around the iPhone. But now there really is this move, especially with that new avenue set up towards the things that now that iPhone is built out as a platform, the things that you can build out from the iPhone platform, and that is photography and music and, and things like cases, which are similar to watch bands for phones. And it sort of lets, while the iPhone business might be maturing, it lets Apple build all these other small businesses that aren't as valuable as the iPhone, but taken together might become very, very valuable for Apple. Hmm. All right. And I can't, can't move on from the store without mentioning the giant window or giant doors that easily could accommodate a car. Yes. Um, when you look at that front showroom, do you can you imagine a, like two cars on the floor? Is there room for that? Yeah, it's it's funny because I went from uh, the Apple Store. I went down to Santana Row lately, where they have later where they have a Tesla store, and the Tesla store looks very much like that front of that Apple Store. Where once that's open, they have room for two Teslas and uh, the bottom chassis there, so three cars in essence for footprint. And absolutely, if you move those tables out out of the way you can easily see especially if apple goes for something small and smart cari you see a couple of those right in the front <laughs> uh all right let me take a break and thank our first sponsor it is our good friends at casper casper sells obsessively obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices go to casper.com slash the talk show and just use that code, the talk show, when you check out, and you will save 50 bucks on any mattress. So here's the deal Casper created one perfect mattress, or at least one technology for the mattress. Uh, it is a, their own custom version of a foam mattress. It is sort of like memory foam, uh, s- sort of like. Uh, 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 it's just the right balance. That's the thing. It's it's there. It I always say that they're a lot like Apple, where instead of coming into a mattress store and picking between ten different types of mattresses, seven different types of foam or spring or this, and you want this kind of sink, do you want this kind of balance? No, forget it. Casper's engineers figured out the right type of foam that's the best for most people, and that's it. And then all you have to do is pick what size you want. That's it. You just pick what size. It could not be easier. And because they sell direct, they're one of these companies that just sells direct. That's why they're they're doing the podcast ads. That's why they're they're I'm talking to you about them. Is there's no middleman. That's where all of these savings come. Casper makes these things. They make them right here in the USA, by the way. Uh, you go to their website, 
you pick what size you want. You put the the talk show code in. You save fifty bucks, and boom! Next thing you know, this box shows up at your house, and you're like, "I cannot believe that there's an entire queen or king size mattress in this box." You take it up to your bedroom. You follow the little directions. Very simple of how you know the right way to open a box, and then shh, boom! All of a sudden, you have a brand new, very comfortable mattress right there in your bedroom. Could not be easier. Here's how, here's how sure they are that you're going to like it. They have a 100-night home trial. You go there, you buy it. Don't forget the code, the talk show. You save 50 bucks. And if you don't love it, within 100 days, you just call them up or go to the website. They don't give you a hard time. They don't try to talk you out of it. They just say, okay. And then they schedule a time to come to your house and pick it up, and they give you a full refund. That's it. And that it's like almost nobody does it because uh, the mattress is so good. I've heard from a couple of readers. Somebody wrote to me once and said that they did and that they were actually surprised at how, you know, they thought this was going to be a nightmare getting rid of this mattress because they actually didn't like it. And it was actually just as easy as I said. You call them up, they come, they get it, and you get all your money back. So go to casper.com slash the talk show. Uh, and remember that. And uh, next time you need a mattress, you'll save 50 bucks. Anything else on the Apple store? No, I think it's it's going to be just interesting to see how how rapidly and how many of these new five special features they roll out to other stores. How how long that's yeah. going to take to happen? Yeah, I you know I bet fairly quickly, but it's you know it's certainly interesting, and it certainly does answer the question of what's Angela Arndt's been up to. Yeah, she's been busy, and anyone who like again anyone who knows on campus knows that she's been super engaged and super yeah. busy since she took over. Just even the transition from prior to Angela Aaron's online and retail were separate operations and she's been unifying those and they did that giant um online store makeover at the end of last year which took them right from that stuff was terribly outdated technology and they went uh like whether you like it or or hate it you know you you can't browse anymore but technologically speaking the new apple store they they flipped a switch and it appeared one day which is a remarkable achievement Hmm. yeah and you know it's uh it's got to be a stressful job, Angela Arntz, because and I, you know, famously Apple doesn't really run by profit and loss centers. You know, mm-hmm. there's no you know target for profit from the iPods and a target for profit from the Macs. And I mean, I'm sure they have internal goals, but they don't run like a division like that. But retail, by definition, I mean, at the end of the day, you you know. You you know there's these fixed costs like the lease of the building and all of the salaries for all of the employees and then there's how much money you made by selling products and it's you know if if there is you know like a decline in that it's going to you know be noticeable. Yeah, and Apple again famously doesn't have presidents, but if you look at the size of of Apple Store business and you similar to iTunes where they I mean they need marketing, they need they need right. all these divisions to make stuff for them. It's it's much more than a branch like engineering or a branch like silicon technologies would need. Yeah, it's you know, it's an incredible operation, really is. I wonder how yeah. many stores they have now. Uh, I forget the number, but they, it was the anniversary, I think the 15th or something anniversary yeah. yesterday when they timed this. Yeah. Um so from one store to another, uh, <laughs> the App Store, yes. and in the news lately, uh, developers something they flipped some sort of switch within the last two weeks or so, and review times at the App Store haven't just gotten better. It's like it, it's like overnight it went from a roughly one week review process. Like you, here's version one point two of my app. I'm submitting it to the App Store. For years, I mean, the entire life of the App Store, you know, going back to 2008, you could more or less expect about a week before your app, if if it goes through and everything is okay, uh, about a week before it is, you get the email that says, okay, you know, 
it's ready to go. Just hit this button and it'll be live in the store. And now it's it's one day, and at times it's within a day. There's a story. Uh, Cable Sasser posted a tweet that one of the people at Panic published not a panic app but his private app you know personal app at 10 30 in the morning submitted it uh got a notice at 3 30 in the afternoon that there was a crasher and it was actually a legitimate crasher so it was like hey thanks for finding this at 5 30 or so uh submitted a fixed version and like by like nine o'clock at night it was ready to go 8 30 at night it was ready to go so within a day they submitted a guy submitted an app they found a crasher resubmitted a fixed version and published it to the store so something's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting to me because immediately everyone's like, well, Phil Schiller, Phil Schiller. But, you know, Phil Schiller has been in charge of app review since the beginning. That's always been part of, the, of, of his organization, the way that evangelism is, and WWDR is. Uh, that's always been a Phil Schiller thing. So I just wonder that now that Phil Schiller has total control over the app store, that there, there's no more, you know, what, what can we put on Eddie? What can we put on Phil? Is anybody really looking at this? It's, we, we need this fixed, Phil. You're going in there to fix it. It has to be fixed, and that prompts a lot of action. I I guess is that what you think is going on? I mean, I think there's a couple things. Like one is, you know, I'll, I'm not a developer, but I've we've had apps just for the company I work with has had apps in the app store for a very long time. And usually, what I would see because I'm on the email chain is the app gets submitted and then you don't hear anything for about a week. And then at the week point, it says your app is now in review. And then usually, very quickly after that, it's either approved or rejected. So the actual review process is, was always very very quick. It was just the part getting your app into that review process that seemed to take a long time. And then when the Google Play Store famously switched to reviews, uh, that, that gap was much less. Like They were doing something, maybe not to the extent that Apple was doing it, but they, were, they didn't have that long gap before your app would go into review. And that was really what seemed to be killer for people. And now that, app, that gap is gone. Uh, and my understanding is, I, f- I forget how long ago it was, maybe three or four weeks ago, there was just a major reorg in that organization. And they, they changed some things that... I, I think needed to be changed. I think everybody involved knew that they needed to be changed. I'm talking mostly like, I don't want to name names here, but people probably know who, were, who was involved in that organization because they did get attention years ago. Uh, that got moved and, and those people are no longer there. And it seems like that, that was the fix that needed to be made, at least, at least the high-level fix that needed to be made to get this process on track. Yeah, I wonder if the, um, uh, I think it was in January where they announced, or maybe it was December. Yeah, it looks like it was back in December. So it was at the end of the year, and Apple made an announcement where uh, it just uh, did they promote somebody? I think they somebody got promoted to be a senior vice president. Um, what's his name? The the uh, chip guy. Um, oh, Johnny Saruji. Yeah, Johnny Saruji got promoted to senior vice president, uh, and they put the app store they it which used to be under Eddie Q they moved it to Phil Schiller's group and um i i can't help but think it's not i don't even think it's like a Phil versus Eddie thing i think it's sort of a fell through the cracks thing because yeah. like you said uh, app review was always part of developer relations and developer relations has been under Phil Schiller uh, going back to the 90s i mean I, I, as long as schiller's been there i think schiller's been in charge of you know the, mm-hmm. not that he runs it uh you know he's obviously got a lot of responsibilities but ultimately whoever's in charge of developer relations is a direct report to phil schiller um and i can't help but think that having the app store as a uh everything else related to the app store being under Eddie's group and review under Phil's group, it just creates a crack that I think yeah. the suboptimal 
you know, week long process, which was obviously, I, I, you know, the app store is a huge success for Apple. Let's just look at this from Apple's perspective. And I'm not trying to make excuses for it. I'm just saying it's objectively, there's no way you could argue that the app store, especially on iOS is a tremendous success. I mean, it's, in my opinion, literally responsible for the the fact that app is now a word that everybody knows. It is a common, it's, you know, it's just a word that everybody knows. Uh, that really wasn't the case before the iPhone. People didn't talk about apps, uh, at least outside, uh, you know, our sphere. And here, it's a huge success. So I think a lot of the complaints that have come in, it's like, come on, what are you complaining about? This thing is awesome. Uh, whereas I think putting it all under Phil eliminates that crack and you, it's a lot easier to say, look, there's no buck. There's, we can't pass the buck here. We're the group in charge of this. This isn't great. A week long review process is, you know, Apple can do better than that. We can't, you know, we Apple can't say we don't have the resources to do better than this. We have billions of dollars. Uh, we could and should do better. Absolutely. I mean, so uh, around that time, there was a rework in the marketing organization as well. And, you know, Phil Schiller took full responsibility for the App Store. But at the same time, you know, someone like Greg Joswiak, who's also phenomenal, took on full product marketing responsibilities across the range of Apple products, not just iOS devices anymore. And I think that allowed a lot of them to sort of focus down on these issues and avoid anything slipping through the cracks. But also, as Apple scales, Phil Schiller is phenomenal. Eddie Q is phenomenal. Uh, Craig Federicki is phenomenal. But the amount of product that they have to ship now is exponentially bigger than what they had to ship several years ago. And they're still human beings. And they can't they can't look at everything all the time. So having people who have that more focused responsibility, I think, is, is really great. Like, I, for a long time, all I wanted from Apple was a front-facing vice president of App Store. And, and with Phil Schiller, you know, it, it might even be better than that world because Phil is it, – it's funny because like, you still have certain personalities from the Apple groups. Like, it always seems like Eddie Q's group is slightly you know, louder shirts and, and a, little, a little looser going. And Phil Schiller is like, very, very focused and, and really cares about the user experience. And they all have these distinct personalities. But giving him the App Store and letting him run it, I think regardless of whether the organization has always been his, it lets him focus down on that and say, if, if, if I'm waking up today and I want to make App Store a phenomenal product, and not just for developers but for users, because if I, there's a bug in an app, I don't want that bug for a week. I want that bug fixed immediately and be having to wait for a developer to get a review. I feel bad for the developer, but I want my bug fixed. And this <laughs> fixes a really big facing customer issue. What do you think? So what do you think they're doing differently? Uh, I think well, part of it, I think, is just they made personnel changes that they really should have made years ago. I mean, like we, we, when, you, when you'd hear what was going on behind some of this, like you, we see this stuff on the outside, but Apple, people inside Apple feel this stuff, feel the same kind of pain we do. And they see decisions that don't make any sense and reversals and, and things like that. And just it, it kept coming back to sort of the same group of people and, and reorging that seems to have taken care of that. So like, I don't, I don't know if there is technical issues that they changed too, but it just seems like this really coincided with reorganizing app review. It, it has to be, there has to be procedural differences though. There has to be something that they're doing procedurally that is different than what they were doing before. Because it's, it's just, even just throwing more reviewers at it, if it was a backlog, I don't think would result in, in same day submissions. I know I just was listening to uh, ATP uh, this morning, yeah. and I know Marco had the exact same experience where it, he had a same day approval of an Overcast update, um, which it just, I mean, same day is, it, that's just not 
how the app store looks. So something is different procedurally. I, I think that with this reorg, the reorg put people in place who were willing yes. to institute the procedural changes that we're seeing. And I think one of them, it has to be something where, where they've enabled reviewers to sort of look at the history of a developer. I, I'm just guessing this. I'm, it's just a guess. But let's say, okay, here's an app. It's from Marco Arment. Uh, and here's the history of submissions that he's made. It's, oh, look at how many, you know, this is a very popular app. And here's how many updates he has submitted. He's never like abused the system by like, uh, I, like I can't help but think that if you like started submitting builds daily, that if you just like every single, <laughs> like if you started submitting like the equivalent of nightly builds, yes, you're not going to get same day approval. I think that they're going to, you know, I would guess, look at the history and put the brakes on that and say, no. Um, but if your history is, wow, th you've never been a problem. You know, this is obviously a, a legitimate app. Uh, here, let's just make sure that there are no crashers. You know, let's open it up and, and go through and see that everything works. Okay, there you go. You're, you're through. Yeah, it, it, it's, I think it's exactly that. I think it's, it, it's putting together a smart system. And what I liked about Cable's tweet, too, is that it said like, it caught the crash, the crash was fixed. Then the app went out, so it's not just they're not just suddenly opening the gates and saying, "Fine, just get rid of the backlog, right. push all apps out." They're running those instruments and they're running those tests and they're finding those things. And then if that flags it, maybe they're paying better attention to it. Say, "We caught this bug. The guy, oh, the guy's resubmitted it. Let's go." You know, nothing else was wrong with it. And maybe just they got rid of people whose opinions were um, not congruent or weren't easy to work with or were holding back other people. Because uh, it really, it, if you think about it linearly, it should not be app review who are making choices about what, what is and what isn't proper user experience. This whole, this whole realms of other people at Apple much better positioned to do that before an app ever hits review. So getting, getting all that out of the way and putting in that system and then just applying it, I think, is the key to what we're seeing now. Yeah. I think so, uh, but it's very, very good news, uh, and it's yep. you know it's one of those rare things that there is no downside to this whatsoever. There is no uh, so whatever they're doing at Apple, whoever if you're listening and you work in uh, uh, developer relations, uh, the entire world uh, of third party developers says thank you. Yeah, I mean absolutely. And to go back to your point, the uh, the App Store is a phenomenal business for Apple. Um, and developers do have pain points, and it's really hard. It's not hard, but it's it's hard emotionally to sort out because a lot of our friends are developers, and you'll go to WWDC and see the App Store Labs, and a developer will go in there and say, "I made a great app. Are you going to feature it?" And they'll say, "Like, what's your marketing plan?" And developers say, "I don't need one. You're going to feature it, right?" <laughs> and they're they're like, "Well, we'll feature even if we do feature it. That's one week out of 51. You know, what are you doing for the other 51 weeks?" And that's the kind of thing that App Store can't really fix. They'll never be able to like, no matter how good your app is, they'll never be able to artificially make it a hit app. Uh, especially in the climate we are now, but they can fix a lot of things. Like search, search is a solved problem. Uh, I type in Twetbot, I should get Tweetbot. There should be there's no discussion about that anymore. Google can handle that. I think Alta Vista uh, handled that, but it's still something that's not workable on the App Store. And I, I understand the technical reasons, like I understand the infrastructure reasons, but you know, there, why doesn't there, why wasn't there a metadata layer that just that intermediates that stuff and then finds goes to the old school database system, pulls the likely results, and gives me that? I mean, search widening, sloppy search, nearest neighbor, all these things. These can help developers. If I search for Twitter, I should get relevant results, not just a linear like an oh, this has Twitter in the name. I want Tweetbot in that in that result, and that's sort of a thing I think that affects customers and affects developers, and it's something that Apple Apple absolutely knows about that, and they feel that pain. But those are sort of things that I really hope that they figure out how to fix sooner yeah, rather than later. They, they yeah, they, it's got to be. I hope so. I hope that uh, this is a sign that makes me think that I would bet on 
them fixing App Store search in the near future, just because it seems like somebody's paying attention to these little longstanding um, issues. And that's another one that's super longstanding. And I've made the exact same argument. I don't care how hard a technical problem it is. Apple is it cannot cry poor, right? Yes. They and and it is it, you know however hard it is, it's obviously been solved. And so the you know the standard is the bar is Google, right? And I should you should not be able to get better search results by typing in a Google box uh like your example, Tweetbot iOS. <laughs> you should not iOS app. You should not get be more likely to be led to Tweetbot than if you type Tweetbot in the App Store. It's got to be that good, and it's you know it, it can't be as hard as web search because web search is searching everything. You're only searching this. I don't care how many you know million apps you have. You're only searching your own apps. I, I just feel like Apple got burned by the, whatever original algorithm they used for search, where they trusted the metadata from developers. And open the door to being scammed. That's, I mean, it's a huge part of the problem with the search results is that you, you get search results that are unrelated. And then if you actually like look at the metadata, it's that they've put like in, in their list of keywords that, you know, we want to be searched by, they put competing app names in, which is supposed to be against the rules, but it obviously doesn't get flagged. Yeah. I mean, to go back to your, to, to your point a minute ago, I, I, I believe it's the customer's job to protect me even from myself. So I, I really, I'm, very hesitant to ever blame a user for something. And if I'm doing something wrong, that's fine. I'm doing it wrong. But it's still, if I'm using a company like Apple, I want them to do everything possible to stop me from making mistakes. And I don't even need keywords. Like I, That's part of the point that's bewildering to me is that you just, and I hate saying this because it's so easy to say how you can fix these things, but I'm just talking about, I type in tweetbot without, and I miss the E because I'm human and I make a spelling mistake. And that doesn't result, on, that doesn't rely on keywords at all. That's just, you have a database of things and you know how to do nearest way neighbor and search widening and, and basic things that search has been doing for a decade. And you know what, res, what the most popular result is that's close to that one. Uh, and you provide me with that result because that's, that's what I want. And you, you kind of do that extra work to give me what I want. And it's, it sort of feels like iTunes, which is the, the overarching infrastructure. All of this was built, the App Store is built on the iTunes Store, which is originally designed to handle music. All of this, to me, is almost like Apple's version of Windows XP, where you have just a legacy product that needs to serve hundreds of millions of people with an incredibly diverse range of, of use cases. Like Jim Dalrymple wants 10 versions of every Ozzy Osbourne song to play exactly the one he wants whenever he wants it. Wants it. Well, I, I just want Siri to say, you know, play me the smooth criminal cover by Glee, and it just does it. And I have zero music in my library. And then there's some someone who just bought an iPod Nano at Best Buy and wants to sync it on their Windows PC using iTunes over a cable. Uh, and you also, on top of that, you have billions of dollars of transactions moving through it. And the person at Virgin Music who knows how to use the crazy back end of iTunes the way a Bloomberg terminal person knows how to use Bloomberg. And they just have to upload their entire music catalog for that week. And they, they wouldn't want anything to change because they know how to do it, even if it is horrible. And balancing all of that, uh, it's super easy on the internet to say, just fix iTunes and just fix this. I would not want that job. It just—it sounds like, like again, like another one of those impossible jobs to me. But it is one of those jobs that Apple has to figure out and fix because it's not getting any better. Yeah, um, you know, it's—it's it's just the fact of human nature. We're—we're we're a terrible, dishonest species. Collect, yes. Collectively, you can't 
trust metadata. I mean, I mean, this it sounds laughable, but in the old days, you know, in the '90s, there was a time where search engines you you put the meta tag in your HTML and it would be like meta, and here you're supposed to list like a handful of keywords that are like, what is this page about? And search engines would take those and actually like trust them. And so yep. as soon as people figured out that the search engines actually trust them, they would just start loading it up with anything and everything to get SEO. It was it, keyword stuffing. It's ridiculous. And of course, anything that can be abused is going to be abused. And unfortunately, the app store, it can be abused. And it is. It's, you know, you see it anytime you type like a popular app name and all these unrelated apps show up. And it's like, why the hell is that listed? Yeah, which is what Google uh, solved for by, you know, they originally they had link authority. And now I think that they're they're judging in social shares and other things like that. You try to determine the authority of the result and give people the results that are more widely respected, not just the ones that are that have, you know, data that you're looking for. Right. Like it's the actual actions of users that Google trusts, Um, including things like being able to see like, okay, you searched for X, Y and Z and we made this the second result but you clicked it, that's the one you clicked. And then I searched for X, Y, and Z, and it's the second result, but it's the one I clicked because I realized it's the one I want. And then they're like, well, that must be a good result for X, Y, and Z. Maybe we should make that the top result for X, Y, and Z because all these people are clicking, you know, they do things like that. That's That can't be cheated. I guess you could try to cheat it by having, mm-hmm. you know, bots click them or whatever, but Google, you know, fights against it. Anyway, uh, it needs to be, the app store needs to be as good as Google search, period. Yes. For, just for apps, right? <laughs> Just yeah, and again, but it's again like I like I, I don't know if you how often you search for email, but I I was trying to search for email this morning just to find something I knew was there, and it was inside the email app. It was just a nightmare. And but you go to Spotlight, works fine. Mm. So whatever I mean, whatever they're doing, it just, there just has to be a better way of doing it. And I know they walked this back. They were going to have this process because they're super concerned about privacy, where they would surface apps online for you if you were looking for them. But I mean, they 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 know who has what app installed, so if. If the Twitter app is installed in everyone's iPhone, yeah, give me that first. But if Tweetbot is on, is the second most installed Twitter app in the iOS ecosystem, show me that second because likely I'll be I'm really happy with it. Hmm. Um, let me take another break here and thank our next sponsor. It is our good friends at Warby Parker. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show and order your free home try-ons today. Um, I've got Warby Parkers. I've got them. They're great glasses. Um, it, it could not be an easier way to shop for glasses. You go to the website and you start picking out the ones you want. You can pick up to five of them. And if you only find like three, you can just order three and they'll throw in, they'll just take a guess and just throw in two extras. Then like two days later, you get a box in the mail and it has five try-on versions of these of the glasses that you picked, the five that you picked. Um you know, with just regular, you know, non-prescription lenses. You go, you try them on, you ask, you know, ask ask the people you, you live with or your friends, you know, do you like these? Do you not like these? You look in the mirror, you find the ones you like, uh, you send them all back, and they already have a sticker. You just put the sticker on the same box. It just goes right back to Warby Parker with these try-on ones. And then uh, a week later or so, the ones that you picked come with your prescription, and that's it. And it's so much cheaper than buying in like an eyeglass boutique. Uh, I think it starts at just uh, 95 bucks. And they don't they don't upsell you on uh, coatings for the lenses. Do you want coatings? Do you want anti-glare? Do you want the, the nice lens? Every, you just get the nice lenses with an anti-glare coating. That's just the default. 
they have a titanium collection. These are like the metal ones that starts at just $145. And that includes prescription lenses. Uh, and that's with premium Japanese titanium and French non-rocking screws. They even pay attention to the little details, like putting nice screws in there. Um, they also offer, and it's that time of the year where uh, the sun's getting out, they offer prescription and non-prescription sunglasses. So even if you have 20-20 vision, there's something for you at Warby Parker. You can get really good, really cool uh, sunglasses, even if you don't need prescription. Uh, so you get good lenses, anti-glare, all of that. Uh, you get really cool-looking frames. You get to try them on at home. Nothing could be better. It's really, really great. And if you, even if you have a strong prescription, like I do, I have a very strong prescription. They offer uh, ultra thin, high index lenses, so that you don't your the actual lenses aren't thick. Back in the old days, if you had a strong prescription, the stronger your prescription, the thicker your lenses were. You got the what do they call them? Coke bottle glasses. You don't get that at Warby Parker. They have high high index. That means that they can do a strong prescription in a very thin lens. Uh, I could not be happier as a customer of Warby Parker. They are just great so go to warby park if you need glasses of any kind just go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show and you will get a free home try on and free shipping both ways and no obligation to buy so if you don't want to buy you get five of them you don't like it no obligation so once again warbyparker.com slash the talk show and i thank them for sponsoring the talk show oh uh what else is going on there's google io yep um I watched the keynote, and for the first time ever, uh, I really thought that Google did a good job. I, it's the first time where I thought, "Wow, that was a really good keynote." But I had I had mixed feelings on it. Like I thought some of the tech, I thought some of the technologies were more impressive than the way that they were presented. Uh, I could see that, and I do think that their their culture. I you know, and again, this is the way most companies work. Apple is the exception where Apple tends to have fewer people on stage. Mm-hmm. Um Apple's pacing in a keynote is always better than everybody else's. And for someone like me whose default keynote to watch is an Apple keynote, it makes everybody else's seem a little it's like, come on, tighten this up. Even yeah, the time I, it takes, even the time it takes to pass off to the next presenter is is longer <laughs> in a Google keynote than in an Apple keynote. Well, tangentially, like we do this thing, Serenity Caldwell, Jason Snell, and sometimes I help out where we transcribe uh, the CEO, like Tim Cook, uh, historically his comments. And I had to do that for we have a site now, Tesla Central, uh, for Elon Musk's last conference call, and it was so difficult because Tim Cook is such a clean speaker, mm. and Elon Musk every second word was like, and and he would interrupt himself through half this, you know, halfway through every sentence, and it, it was incredibly hard to transcribe him, and it made me really appreciate just how well apples like just not not just what they say but how polished they all are as speakers yeah because ultimately in a transcription like that you're not doing like a a legal transcription Mm -hmm. where you're documenting every single word out of their mouth you really want to get like a here's what he meant to say transcription not that you want to put words in his mouth but if he's you know adds an extra like or an um or something like that you don't want that in the transcription what you're doing is trying to make a transcription that's easier for your readers to learn what he had to say like an idealized version of the, of what he said. Exactly, exactly. That's the right way to do it. And uh, yeah, it's like with Tim Cook, it's a lot closer to the idealized version right out of his mouth. 
Yeah, and the same thing. Like, so I, I watched some of it. Some of it was super interesting. They have new chat apps, and I'm I just don't need new chat apps. I have so many of them already. So it would have been nice if those were sort of expansions of existing services. I understand this, but they did this one duo, which is just real time. It's like FaceTime, but the minute the call comes in, it's already streaming live video. And to me, I I just know I'm going to get people sending me junk, like their junk specifically, right away, and there'll be no way to avoid it. I just I don't think I that's don't gonna, know. that's not going to work on iOS though. It won't, but I mean, it, just the idea of it, like the idea of giving someone a direct, like they, they can just pop up in your eyeballs to me is a recipe for disaster. Because yeah. human, like you said before, humans cannot be trusted with this technology. Well, let's go through the stuff in order. We'll start okay. with um, Google Home. Now this leaked the night before, um, but it's not a surprise. It is, And it was nice. Sundar Pichai actually called out uh, Amazon and said Amazon's been doing good work in this area. Um it, it, which is sort of a tacit acknowledgement that this is a direct competitor. It's not like a tangential competitor. It is absolutely a dead-on direct competitor to the uh, Amazon Echo, and that the accord, you know, that the family of devices that Amazon has developed around it. It is a so Google Home is a little. Uh, Syracuse calls it a weeble wobble. Remember the weeble wobbles? Yeah, it, it looks to me like an air freshener. They weeble and they wobble, but they won't fall. They down. don't fall down. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's a little speaker, pretty small, surprisingly small. I thought when they first showed the product shots, I thought it was going to be more like Echo sized, Echo height, and it's a lot smaller than the Echo. Um, so you plug it in; it is an always listening speaker, and you say like "Hey Google" to it, and you can start, com- you know, a, a voice driven assistant conversation with it. Yeah, it was interesting to meet a couple of vectors. First, Amazon. I mean, Amazon's been given a huge amount of credit for the Amazon Echo and for Alexa. But what always strikes me is that it is a U.S.-only product and I believe still a unilingual product. And it's impressive what they can do with it. But the solution set that they have to offer is so incredibly small compared to what Apple or Google are offering with multilingual support. And, for example, with the Apple TV, Siri not only does multilingual support, but they can do multiple languages within the same query. Like, I can... I speak French too, so I can, in French, ask for an English movie title. And that is an incredibly hard problem to solve that Apple is solving. And as far as I know, Alexa is nowhere near. So yeah, Alexa handles Alexa handles American English queries really, really well. But I think it's impossible at this point to not realize like, just how far ahead Google really is in that sort of technology. And I'm hopeful that by introducing this, it, it won't, it'll no longer be an English-only American product, but it'll be something that becomes competitive internationally. Uh do you know is Google Home U.S. only? I, I think it might be starting that way. I, I, the whole thing was kind of weird to me because they Sundar Pichai, I think he was the one giving the the home pitch, at least in the beginning. Was he started off basically saying how wonderful it was that Google understood context, and he basically described the sequential inference engine that Siri launched with. Like you, you could do the kind of. That's what I meant by the presentations weren't as impressive as the technology. The things that he that he said Google Home could do were things that Siri has done for years and things that Apple TV launched with months ago. And I, I, I believe, I firmly believe this technology is, is beyond what Apple's doing with Siri right now. But he, he didn't show me that. He made it sound like Google was inventing the very basics of voice assistants. Hmm. Uh, I will say, and I spoke about this last week on my show, uh, well, I guess it was two weeks ago, but the last episode with Ben Thompson, who Ben Thompson is a, a bit, he's more of a bull on the echo. And I know Marco Arment is too. Um, and I think the difference I'm not, I just got one a few weeks ago at the 
because those guys were saying how good it was. And I really, really do think that this voice-driven assistant thing is, in the coming decade, going to be... It's like the new touch. Not that it's going to replace touch, but it, it... we're on the cusp of getting this to be really useful and therefore it's it's definitely going to happen and so i really want to stay up to date with what everybody's doing and it's easier for me to do it because i'm in the u.s and i speak english so i can use amazon's product um i think that those two are much happier with the echo than i am because they have a lot of smart home stuff in their houses that that hook up to the echo and i don't i don't have any smart light bulbs or anything like that and so therefore what the echo does for me is almost nothing it's you know i could get the weather and even that even with the weather it's like a lot of times i just want to know the temperature because i can see outside whether it's raining or not like it's in our kitchen and we have you know a window like like humans do um so i could see if it's sunny or overcast or rainy i just want to know how if i need a jacket and if i ask uh, Alexa for the temperature she gives me the whole weather including the temperature but the temperature doesn't come until like halfway through the weather report and all I you know yes Siri is better at stuff like that like you can ask Siri for the weather and you get a whole weather forecast but if you just ask for the temperature outside she'll just tell you the temperature and I find yeah. that to be more useful there's there's several things uh, here that at least for me are are, are really interesting. Uh, Amazon again, it, that product is stuck in your house, and I have Siri on my wrist. I have it in my pocket. I have it on my lap uh, with my iPad, and maybe soon with the Mac. Uh, and I also so I Siri goes with me everywhere, and that means that everything that I have connected to Siri is with me everywhere. And I do have a lot of the connected technology in my house, like I have a lot of the Hue light bulbs, for example, but also the LED panels that I use for video podcasting are connected to an iHome plug because, you know, there's no Hue light bulb giant LED panels, but because I named them correctly, if I say turn on my studio lights, it, it knows that the plug is called a light too, so it just turns it on and suddenly every light is on there. And if I say make the lights purple, it does all those things. And wait, turn what, off do you, the what are you using to drive that, Siri? Uh, yeah, Siri does all of that for me. And how do, how did you connect that to Siri? So it, Siri works through HomeKit. So anything that's HomeKit aware will just will work with a series of commands with Siri, and it has uh, triggers, and it has rooms, and it has events, and it has all sorts of really really fun, uh, really powerful stuff that you can use with it already. I because I don't. This is something I need to catch up on, but. I, 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 how do you configure stuff in HomeKit? Is there a HomeKit app? I don't even know. So there's the, internally there's a home there's a home app that they haven't shipped and rumor is you know every year they say they're going to ship it and the rumor is they'll ship it this year but you can configure it in any HomeKit Aware app but I bought a ten dollar app off the App Store called Home that's really good that just shows me every room in the house and every device okay. that's connected to it and every state of it and I can make quick changes in it very quickly. So you yeah because I honestly didn't wouldn't even know where to start like if a whole bunch of HomeKit stuff showed up at my house and I plugged it in I don't even know where to start on that in that ios so you're saying you just you got to get an app and so you got an app called home and home is a third-party app that you paid 10 bucks for and it uses apple's HomeKit apis that they've been talking about for a while um to to allow you to to set this stuff up yeah you just use the camera you scan the barcode on the device it sets it up for you you give it a name you assign it to a room you can have multiple houses set up uh you you can through iCloud you can control things remotely so that if I'm not at home I can still use Siri on my phone for example to control the the lights in the house it's, it works really really well and because it's not see, for me Amazon has big problems and that is again their U.S. focus but it's very unclear to me that Amazon could ever have a presence in China because they have their own retailers yeah. and they have 
their own service. And I want a product that if I'm in Europe, you know, still works great for me. And if I'm traveling on business to, or if I'm in China, like I speak very bad Mandarin, but I speak a little bit of Mandarin and, and Siri supports that, it supports Hebrew. It does all these things to me that makes it a much, it has the potential to be a much greater solution. And I think so does Google now than, than anything Amazon is fielding. Marco described Google, or not Google now, Alexa, uh, the, as a, a sort of like a voice-driven command line. Meaning yes. that it's in the same way that at a command line at the terminal, you have to put the, the, the arguments in the exact right order. It is rigid. Like the, the command line is not plain English. <laughs> you know, you don't just type, show me a list of the files in this folder. You have to type ls. And if you yeah. type ls slash or dash a, you get all of them. And, you know, the arguments have to be the exact right way. And then once you learn those arguments to Alexa and the right order to put them, it is very, very reliable. And it's, you know, it's, you know, nearing 100% accuracy that, 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 the, the voice recognition will recognize it, will quickly parse it, and will quickly get the result back from the cloud. Um, but that's exactly why I think uh, uh, I, I'm not going to say a dead end because they could obviously scrap it and replace it with a new engine at some point. But I just feel though that that rigidity—that's what Marco likes. That's what Ben Thompson likes about it—that it's dependable because you can learn it. But I also feel like ultimately it's limiting because there's going to be so many things we want to use these things for. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people out there. Every time I mention that Siri has actually gotten a lot better and it's is noticeably improved to me in every way, both in terms of the speed, like when I just just want mm -hmm. to, and I know attributing it all to Siri is is not quite right because, like, if I'm just in iMessage and and I want I'm walking on the sidewalk, so I want to dictate a text message. That's not really Siri. It's just the voice recognition. Yep. But it does go round trip to the cloud, and it is so much faster than it used to be. It's re and it's and even local on the latest iPhones. If you can't connect, it'll still do a bunch of dictation locally. Right. It'll do some of it locally. Um, yeah. It's gotten so much better. It's super useful to me. Um, but I actually do use Siri quite a bit. And there's so many things that Siri can do. And, and that if I just take a guess whether, you know, that seems like something Siri could do. I'm often right. And one of them, yes. for example, is that Siri now knows the point spreads for uh, like NFL games, NBA games. Um, so, like, if you, I wanted to know uh, what the point spread was for the second Golden State Warriors uh, Oklahoma City game because I wanted to see if it went up because everybody was expecting Golden State to win because they lost game one. And Siri instantly knew the point spread. And I thought, oh, I wonder if Alexa can do that. Nope, no, no chance. It's, 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 I use Siri all the time, too. Like I, If I'm driving, I'll just use Siri, and I have an idea for an article, I'll just tell Siri to take a note, and it, it comes out well enough that I can quickly put an article together. But beyond that, what I really like about it is uh, it does do that sequential inference. So if I say, turn on my studio lights, it turns on the lights just in the studio, and if I say, make them purple, it knows that I'm still talking about the lights, so it makes the lights purple. If I say, make them white, it'll say, I can't make them white, but I can turn them into sunlight. And to me, that, that's kind of tedious, because like just understand that I mean that anyway, and do it. Don't give me the back chat but at least it's smart enough to not do what i was complaining about before and that is to widen its search and figure out what i want and do that even if it's not exactly what i like if it's not doing exactly what i asked for yeah um so one of the things that google home does that seems really interesting is it integrates with chromecasts that you might have in your house and there is an interesting demo in, in the demo video they had where the there's a little boy asking something some kind of question about uh, space or something like that and then he just said put it on the tv and it put whatever he was searching for on the tv now 
some of that is a bit of a cheat because the TV, you know, at least my TV, you you would actually have to already have picked the Chromecast as the HDMI input, mm-hmm. and the TV would have to already be on. Um, but still, that's a pretty that's a pretty cool trick. It yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things in there that that seem almost quasi magical, and there like, I, I, one of the big things, especially with the Amazon Echo, is the API access. And you've probably heard the same as I am that there's rumors of Siri APIs for years, but I, right now Apple has not shipped an app, uh, Siri API, so third party software and services beyond HomeKit can't access it, and that does limit what it can do. Uh, but I, I'm wondering when we eventually do get that new Apple remote app, if we'll have sort of a build, the ability to control Siri on our Apple TV through our iPhone, because Apple is very good at sort of leveraging all their technologies with things like continuity and handoff that will will get sort of those abilities and, and maybe google is using the same thing that you know the siri remote does when it turns it on that the hdmi throughput tells the tv and everything else to go to the right place and if you have the exact right setup it'll all work so i'll give them a little bit of credit to that it, as far as i know it's not shipping for months though so it's still a preview and you never know how much of a preview will actually be finished and ready enough to launch when the product goes out the door yeah nothing i don't think anything that they announced in the keynote yesterday is shipping yet uh even the software like android n is still yeah. uh, in beta um and the device is quote later this fall or something like that yeah. um even the 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 chat apps are i think they said summer or something like that um i do question big picture i, I mean i well do you think so now of the three of amazon Apple and Google. Now, two of the three have announced this Echo-like standalone voice assistant device. A no-screen, just speaker. You talk to it and get audio out of it device. Do you think Apple would ship a product like that? Yeah, I mean, like there's been rumors of them doing that for a while, and it was all mixed into... Like, like the Apple TV is, was a really complicated project, and they went many, many directions with it you know, that are different than what they ultimately ship. But there was this idea that it would be the central home hub and would serve as a, as a nexus for controlling everything within your house. And they ultimately didn't go that way. But there's a lot of choices that Apple would have to make uh, to make that product. So like with the Apple TV, they very clearly said that you have to hold down this button when you talk to Siri. And that's fine when you're just sitting there in front of your TV with a remote. But if you want a ubiquitous device that, that's like Echo or that's like the, the Google Home device, you have to eliminate that. You have to just let people talk to it, which means you have to have a live mic in the living room, almost like you know Microsoft did that with Connect as well. And Apple as a company has to be willing to say, we're going to put a live mic in your living room. And that's, this is very counter to what they've done with their products previously. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I don't think Apple would do this. And I'm, I, I think that these voice-driven assistants are absolutely positively going to be – they're already useful, but they're going to be way – you know, in 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, how did, we, how did we get by without them? I'm not sure that this standalone speaker microphone de- device is the form factor to do it because I, it doesn't seem to scale. And I know people asked – I don't – I. I know some people were asking, like, well, what do you, what if you have multiple of these Google Home devices, mm-hmm. you know, one on each floor? Did they work together? And I think the answer is not yet. Um, like, I'm not quite sure that that's the answer to how you have this everywhere you want it is by setting up these speaker devices that, uh, you know, I almost feel like the speaker devices should be dumb terminals, not yes. the central hub. Yeah, and it's I mean, useful that, to have the speaker and say, play the music, you know, I want to play this song right now, and then it comes out and it sounds good, and it's there to help listen. But I don't think, I think it should just be like a dumb terminal. It shouldn't really be the hub. 
Yeah, I went to a demo at Nuance, like just in terms of the actual opposite of this. I went to a demo. Nuance has a had a, a press event, and I went to look at it, and they were showing their version of this, and it was a couple of years ago. But they wanted to make sure that if you were talking, you know, your kid couldn't interrupt you. So you would snap your fingers twice, and you'd have a camera and three microphones beam form on you, and then as you walked around, it would stay locked to you, so you could talk, and nobody else would get any crosstalk in on that. And that to me was like the most overwrought of all these possible solutions. But then the other day I was raising my arm to just stretch and uh, I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask Siri something. So I said, you know, yo Siri. And because I was moving my arm, my Apple watch activated because I had an iPhone with me, the iPhone activated, my uh, 9.7 inch iPad pro activated. And because the 12 inch was plugged in that activated as well. <laughs> so I had, I just said to turn on the lights and in all these four or five voices, were said yes all at once. Now, the lights just went on, so I don't know which one was ultimately responsible for it. Right. But it means like there's just so much potential for a collision and, and sort of figuring out what is the behavior. Like, how do you know which device is closest to me or which one I'm talking to? Because maybe my watch is closer, but I didn't move it, so Siri's not listening. And maybe my uh, my iPhone is across the room and my Mac is in my lap, but I really am talking to my iPhone. And so solving those are interesting problems. Yeah, it was, that's exactly the point I was going to make is that, okay, I, do, I don't think that this Echo-like speaker thing is the ultimate solution to this to the what is the device you buy to have this interaction with a voice assistant but on conversely i don't know that apple's you know like let's just have hey and then the name of the yeah. i don't want to be, have to beep it out uh hey you know yo siri hey you know uh <laughs> yeah. uh I don't think that's the answer either to have it on all of your devices because I've had the situation too where you try it and multiple devices are plugged in and they all answer or you know the iPhone doesn't even have to be plugged in anymore. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. I, I you know it's but it's definitely coming. And I thought that some of the stuff that the that they showed in the the Google Home is really impressive. Um, but then some of it too is also, it's it's so hand wavy. It's like, yeah. are you serious? It's like, uh, you know, like I could see like the the, the, the mom in the video, she, her, she got a notice that her flight was delayed by half an hour. And it's like, you know what? Number one, nobody ever, your flight is never delayed by half an hour. <laughs> like if it's half an hour <laughs> delayed, that you just bored late. They don't give you a warning. If your flight's delayed, yep. it's like hours. But I think they wanted to make it like a nice happy story. So it's like, oh, your flight's delayed by half an hour. And so she said, move my dinner reservation from 7.30 to 8. And it worked. And I could see that working because it's surely through OpenTable. And I think OpenTable's APIs would, would allow that to work. Um, but there were other, other things that, that they did that it just seemed like come on that's it's too easy uh, you know I, I absolutely agree and one of the things about this technology is it really is a parallel interface like we will still have our tactile interfaces but natural language and voice is so powerful that we'll have these running in parallel and we won't really see it we've it's taken years to evolve just a, a lot of the basic things we now take for granted on the old mouse interfaces and now on, on the gesture based interfaces and it'll take some time to sort of like one of the things I worry about is immediacy like I forget if it was this demo or the other demo where it just said you know buy movie tickets and uh, I'm petrified. It's ever since the iMessage changes, I yesterday I shared my location with somebody by accident because it was instant, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a person that it was a problem for. But location is highly sensitive information, and me hitting that by accident and not having sort of a confirmed deny request in between that was hugely problematic for me. And the same idea with here, like just get movie tickets, just make a reservation, and I can go back and say, oh no, don't make them. But just the, the we don't seem to have all the steps that we have on our traditional interfaces yet established for this. Yeah, I know Syracuse called out the. Uh, uh, 
<laughs> get Indian food. And it was like, okay, yeah. it'll be at your house. And it's like no no confirmation as to what you're ordering <laughs> or what restaurant. It's just, okay, there'll be Indian food in a bag on your porch by the time you get home. And it's like, come on. And it's like in the back. It's one of those things that's really hard to do by voice, and it would have to. It would necessarily require a lot of back and forth, right? It, it, it should more or less be the same amount of back and forth that you would have if you actually called the restaurant and talked to yep. a person. And you could have a standing, like you could have gone to the trouble of presetting, like this is my standard order. If I don't say anything right. else, this is the order. But that's a lot of faffing work that they don't show off in the beginning. Right. And otherwise, exactly to your point, there are sometimes when it's faster to just tap a quick button because your brain is reading all the information on a screen and can react to it, you know, with with fingers and taps faster than it could if you'd have a long, involved conversation with something. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, I think I'm going to buy one of these, but I don't know that I'm going to leave it on. You know, I don't know. I've still got the Echo downstairs, but. There, it, you know, I, I might as well mention it. I mean, because in light of the, you know, I, I just don't see how you can avoid the privacy implications of this. Yeah. Um, and even above and beyond the, do you trust Amazon with a always-on microphone in your kitchen? Do you trust Google with this? And you know, the answer obviously for many, many people is yes. Uh, you know, and yeah. and is Google learning anything more about you than it already knows if you're a heavy, you know, Google Services user? Um, but just think about it from like a law enforcement angle. This is like yes. a dream from the FBI. We're this bugging is almost, ourselves. Right. Because like, imagine if you're under investigation and FBI goes to Google with a warrant and says, uh, you know, we're investigating this individual, Rene Ritchie. Uh, does, he, does he have a, a Google home? Yeah. And if Google is legally compelled to say yes, then they can issue a warrant that says, well, we we would like to have that microphone recording everything that, uh, you know, please send us a 24-hour MP3 file of everything that gets said uh, every day in this house. Like that is something that they could compel Google to do. It's funny. One of my favorite, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a phenomenal movie but there's a movie called equilibrium and they have christian bale in it and he's a grammaton cleric and they, they want to kill him at the end and they say what's the easiest way to get your weapon away from you and he says what and he says to ask you for it and it's it's true with passwords i mean any law enforcement will tell you that often the easiest way to get something is just to ask it because we're happy to do a lot of things to ourselves just out of convenience with no sense of security and that was one of the more troubling aspects of of the google io to me is that a lot of the things that they're doing requires me to remove encryption in order to have it done. Like they showed off their, and I know we'll get to it later, but they showed off their chat app and they have an incognito mode. And only when you go into incognito mode does it have end-to-end encryption. And that's because they want to do a lot of uh, machine learning bots you know, inside that. But that to me is dumb. I, I, if I'm talking to you, John, and then I want to ask a bot something, I still I, I still want that parsed. I want my communication with you to be end-to-end encrypted. Then if I address the bot, you know, turn off the encryption. If I go back to talking to you, turn it back on again. And for the very reasons you mentioned, like I, I have a personal belief that our phones are, are like hard drives for our brains and that they should be covered with a privilege that is beyond what spouses or priests or doctors or anybody enjoys in the law. They should just be almost inviolate and that their data should not be accessible to law enforcement. But we don't live in that world. And, and the world we're living in now, we are giving away and leaking so much data that all of these products are a huge concern. Uh yeah, I you know it's I, I think that it's not going to keep people from using it. And there's also been questions, you know, as now that our phones can listen to us, is has law enforcement ever tried to compel Apple or somebody else to turn your uh, iPhone into a bug? 
And I don't think that that's ever happened. And I'm not, you know, but it's obviously a concern now that we have these devices that are literally always listening to us. I mean, did you see the Edward Snowden documentary? No, I haven't seen it. Uh, it's great. There's a scene in the very beginning, and they're filming him, uh, and it's it's actual film of him doing the first interviews that led to the articles, I believe, in the Guardian. And right away, he, there's an IP phone on the table, and he unplugs it, takes it apart, and they're saying, "Why are you doing that?" And he said, "It has a speaker." And they said, "It's not on." He goes, "What do you mean it's not on?" Right. I used to sit on the opposite ends of these things, and he would put his blanket over his head to type in his password because there were cameras outside of the windows. And he's like, "You you don't understand the degree to which we are doing surveillance on you." That's Creepy. What's the name of the, it's the documentary? Citizen Four, or Citizen Five, or something like that. No, I haven't seen it. I don't. I don't. I can't really say why because it's something I'm interested in, and I love good documentary. But it's it's terrific. Um, and I know that there's the feature film is coming out soon with yes. uh, Edward Norton, right? Isn't Edward yep. Norton playing? Sort I, of a dead ringer. Yeah. All right. uh, and all these things go through your mind, and you know, and Apple's taking great pains. Uh, to to take care of security, and they're building systems that they they themselves cannot get into, and that's the thing is that you might trust Google with your data, but once someone else has your data, I, like I'll take responsibility for losing my own data, but once somebody else has it, uh, even if they don't do anything bad with it, they're like employees at that company, or or that company gets exploited, or some uh, place that they're using to store data gets broken into, there's it, it creates this this ability for that information to get even further out. It's just one step removed. It's it's one step less safe, and that, those are really, we don't think about it because convenience is such a good selling point, but it, it, this is super valuable things. It's the most valuable thing that we have is our information. And and, and I really worry about a lot of these products and what, what they'll turn us into. Yeah. So the next thing they did announce, and you mentioned it, it's their new chat app. It's, you know, effectively, it's like uh, they're... Well, Google has had a lot of chat apps over the years. So they're starting over with a new one. It's called Allo. A-L-L-O. Yeah. Um, it's like yeah. French for hello. I get, I, obviously, uh, hello, uh, not a bad name. I like it. Uh, but they've wiped the slate clean. This is not Google Hangouts. This is a new thing. It's a chat app. So it's sort of a cross between iMessage and like WhatsApp or something like that. And it's not Spaces, which they introduced, I think, three days before this one, which also has chat features. So. Yeah, that's curious that they that they released Spaces before this and then didn't talk about Spaces in the keynote at all. Uh, I haven't really looked closely at Spaces yet, but I've heard from a couple people that I should because it looks like a really you know seems like a really useful thing. I just have so much fatigue. It's like the virtual real estate is free, so people can build as many things as they want. But it's almost like if you if you have a garden and you're tending it, and somebody gives you another garden, and you got to tend that, and then another garden, and then another garden, and you start forgetting about the first one. And it, it feels that way with all these programs. Like I still have people contacting me on Hangouts. No Google Wave anymore, thankfully. Uh, but you know there was Google Buzz, and then there's Google uh, Spaces, and it just and people have expectations. Once you use that, if they send you a WhatsApp message or a Snapchat, that you're going to get back to them. And there's just more and more of all these services and it doesn't look like it's slowing down and just the demands on our attention are ridiculous yeah uh, and Google's not doing anything coherent with the and I understand it's easier for them to launch a separate service but it, it's going back to what we're talking about with Apple it's not their job to do things that are easy for them it's their job to do things that are better for me and my world maybe bearing it all in slack would be the best thing but you know Google could make a product that is coherent and that produces these features and gets rid of ones that they don't find as valuable anymore and that would be better for me as a customer uh the thing about Allo is the privacy thing that you said. So there's two modes yeah. in Allo, and the default mode includes like the 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 you know what's new is that it includes a Google bot interaction, 
And so you can like at Google and, you know, in the middle of your chat and get answers to questions that you could ask Google. Um, I can imagine that being useful. Um, but it seems weird that it's the default. And then they call the other mode incognito mode, which to me is very problematic. I, I really, really don't like using that. And I know that the term comes from Chrome, where that's what they call the private mode for your tabs. Um, and I guess they're, you know, if you want to be, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt, that's why they chose the word incognito. But to me, the, calling it incognito, uh, it puts a slightly negative connotation on it, that it's, you know, that, that that's something that you use for something that you want to keep secret. Mm -hmm. uh, or something where you want to be anonymous or you want to hide. And it's, it's sort of carries like a negative, like negative connotation to me. Whereas the word private, which is what I think they should call it. Uh, and I think it should be the default is, well, of course you want privacy. Yeah. You know, who doesn't want privacy? And, uh, you know, as, as Christopher, I, I'm going to botch his last name. So Soyahan, so how do you pronounce his name? Do you know? I'm not sure. Uh, do you know who he is? No, he's, uh, um, uh, a privacy advocate and he's you okay. know, super good follow. I'll, I'll put his Twitter in the uh, show notes. Um, Thank you. But as he described it yesterday, uh, it, the default mode of Allo, which is encrypted, but it's not end to end encrypted. So the privacy mode and the way like iMessage works. And I think the way WhatsApp works is end to end encrypted. So if I send a message on iMessage to you, it is encrypted leaving my phone and it isn't decrypted until it gets to your phone. And in between, like when it's in Apple's hands, it is in an encrypted state that they can't mm -hmm. read. That's end-to-end -end encryption. Apple's really only there to facilitate the, one, you know, connecting your uh, uh, Apple ID to your phone. It's just a route, and it's end-to-end -end encrypted. That's, you know, the term is exactly what it sounds like. Where the and it makes it impervious to person-in-the-middle to person, to per person in the middle attacks, which is yes. the important thing. Right. So if somebody, you know, hacks my uh, – or, or if, you know, if I'm in the Starbucks and I'm using the Wi-Fi and somebody else, you know, is, has, you know, is reading all the stuff that goes through the Wi-Fi router, all they see is the encrypted version <laughs> of the message. Um, the default mode for Allo that includes the Googlebot by definition, in order to have this interaction with the Googlebot, it is over HTTPS, but it's encrypted from you to Google server. Then Google sees what you type, and then Google encrypts it to send it on to you. That's like exactly how the FBI wants all of these services to work. Yes. That's exactly what the FBI has been pushing for in this entire argument and uh, maybe, you know, not just the FBI here in the U S but law enforcement, you know, like-minded law enforcement in Europe and elsewhere. And I'm certainly that the Chinese, I'm certain that the Chinese government would like to yes. see uh, messaging services work like that too, because if it's only secure over the air from me to Google, and then it's unencrypted on Google side, then, then if Google has served a warrant, to say, let us see these messages. We're really, we're really, you know, we're conducting an investigation between John Gruber and Renee Ritchie. They're running a uh, some kind of scam. Uh, we need to see their messages. They, there they are, <laughs> right? I mean, be, I understand why Google's doing it, and like because it, the better they're all about machine learning, and the more data you feed that, the better it is. And they're getting access to, to what we're typing, how we're typing it, when we're typing it. Uh, all those discussions, it, it really it feeds at enormous scale. It feeds their machine learning and their artificial intelligence projects. But 
and they're giving me a free service in exchange. And convenience is always at war with security. But to, to your point, that what Google wants here happens to be what everybody else wants. And you could make a case that Google will protect it, but Google is bound by by laws. And we don't know what those laws are going to be yet. But also Google is subject to abuse. And we saw with the NSA, they when they started having access to this, they, they didn't just use it for legitimate and noble government purposes, but they used it to keep track of ex-girlfriends and to spy on people and to do things. And yeah. that you can say that won't happen, but the best way for that not to happen is what Apple's doing, where they themselves do not have access to it. Yeah, that's it's exactly right. And I know for a fact that the iMessage was architected with that in mind. It was, you know, the 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 high level top one of the top bullet items was we need to design this system from the ground up so that we can't we cannot see these messages even if compelled to do so by a warrant. And FaceTime too, which is why it's allowed to be used in the medical industry because it's end to end encrypted, and there's there's no chance for someone to intercept that or be, and have private data leak. I mean, they've they've been doing this with all their services systematically. Yeah. So I really, I, 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 there's no other way for Google to do this with the bot. I don't think, unless you know, or I guess there is other. There are other ways where it would have to be like you said, like where everything I type to you is still end to end encrypted, yeah. but the only the at Google ones are not. And I really feel like that they should, and it doesn't seem like they're doing it. I think that they should use do something visual, like you know, uh, the way that iMessage does green bubbles for yes. SMS and blue bubbles for uh, iMessages. They should do something to make clear wh- what is end-to-end encrypted and what is not. And I really yeah, kind of feel absolutely. like they dropped the ball by doing this the the way that they're doing it. I mean, it's sort of deliberate, but I really do feel like it's it's a problem. I mean, it's a service that I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to rely on. And to your point, I mean, using the term incognito, it, it's, it's baffling to me because they're using your phone number as a unique identifier. And that means that you're, by definition, you're not incognito. Yeah, and if I'm messaging you in incognito mode, I, we still know who each other are. There's no identity questions there. Right. It's it's not incognito. It's really a problematic use of the word. I really yes. do think so because it's not the same as Chrome. Chrome, when you go into incognito mode, you really are anonymous or at least, you, should, you know, if it works the way it's designed, I don't you know. I mean, obviously, there could be a bug or well, something. Well, even but. there, like it, it stops your history and it stops the cookies. But unless you're using some form of uh, ad tracker and all those things, blockers, it's not stopping the web from monitoring your progress in general. You have to go incognito and block everything else. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't route you through some kind of anonymizing service. Service, either your IP yeah. address is still just your IP address, you know, but it is cut off from yeah. your regular cookie stash and, and et cetera. Your search um, history. Then next, the the, the sibling. Oh, to, by the way, we should say that Apple actually, I think, does call this privacy mode and they, they're the ones who started it. Yes. You know, in Safari, you mean? Yes. Yeah. I, I Yeah. It's new private window. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's the, the, their use of incognito and allo is really not that it's not that similar to to Chrome. And like you said, you're still you know still your phone number, and it's yep. it, it, you know I, I say thumbs down, thumbs down on the architectural design of allo, or at least the uh, the defaults should be flipped. In my opinion, the default should be what they call private mode, and then you should be able to turn on you know, give me some help from Google bot mode. And then there should be a very, very clear visual indication that you're no longer uh, private. Yeah. And the, the whole, the whole, like, again, like that's why I said, like the technology was impressive, but the presentations I think did the, did, did not do them any services. It's unclear to me, like if you and I are chatting on iMessage and I'm researching a scotch thing. It reminds me almost of those really, really early adventure games where you're standing on the edge of a forest and it's a river to one side and you type and pick up the sword and it does that. And it's just, <laughs> it's not always an optimal form. I mean, we replaced that. Those aren't how games run anymore. We replaced that with easier 
more direct forms of manipulation. And it's not clear to me uh, exactly what, like you said, or, or, or Syracuse has said about the curry. It's not clear to me how efficient this form of communication will be. There will be specific cases where it's very useful, but do I want my entire chat experience subsumed with these these little use cases that I'm, I might not ever make put, put to use? Yeah. So the sibling app to Allo is called Duo, and it is, you know, I think it's very fair to say it's their answer to FaceTime. Mm-hmm. It is um, live video chat. I, I don't know. I, there might be an audio mode. I, I, I mean, it doesn't demo as well, but, you know, it's live video. Um, it is a companion to Allo, so I'm guessing it still uses your phone number as an identifier. It is going to be cross-platform, uh, iOS and Android. Uh, and like you said earlier, you hinted at it. They have a feature they call knock knock preview, which means yes. that if I call you, it'll start the video on me, and the 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 notification that you get, you know, when it rings or whatever, you know, says, you know, when I'm I'm knock knocking you, <laughs> it it'll already show you where I am, who I am, and what I'm doing. It you know, you'll you'll already have the video to look at. I don't know how who thought this was a great idea. Like I understand they use like someone's kids as a demo, but I don't know who decided that they that anybody has the right to put live video on my home screen without my consent or my lock screen without my consent. Because we know people, it's not going to end up well for us. Well, <laughs> yeah. all right. Like if I know you're having a meeting. <laughs> No, like my, my phone rings and all of a sudden it's every inch of Guy English on my home screen. Right. I mean, it's just not going to work well. <laughs> it's an interesting demo, and like you said, it may not be it may not be a good feature. And and on iOS, I don't. It's ninety nine point nine 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 percent certain there's no way that's going to work because there's no there. You know, that's something that's only going to be on Android. Yeah, well, you'd have to have the app open and sitting there waiting yeah. for the person to call, at which point it kind of defeats the purpose. Right. If you're already in the app, they could do it, but otherwise, there's you know, it's just going to be a standard notification. Um, again, and again, it, another separate application. Yeah. Well, I kind of you know, it's the same reason that FaceTime is a separate applica- application. It I, it is, but Apple doesn't have you know FaceTime plus an app like Hangouts that already does very similar things to this. I mean, it's just it's layer upon layer of Google communication apps at this point. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to me that they're doing it. And I wonder, you know, they didn't, uh, unlike with Amazon and the Echo where they, they called it out, they didn't mention Apple and FaceTime, but it's especially with the Duo. And I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that Allo is as much a competitor to WhatsApp and uh, Line and all yeah. the other, you know, there's so many messaging apps that are out there. Uh, you can't just say it's a direct answer to iMessage. And iMessage is a little different. iMessage doesn't have stickers, and it's yes. really more about replacing SMS text messaging. Um, but with Duo, it's impossible not to talk, to talk about this and not mention FaceTime. And it looks like FaceTime. I mean, like, the screen just looks like FaceTime. Yeah, and I just think that they're answering for Android users a need that, you know, this is that's like a cool thing that iPhone users have been using for years. And you know, there hasn't been a good answer for Android users, and now there yeah. will be. And it, it's 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 interesting because FaceTime. I mean, well, the story is well known. Steve Jobs announced it was going to be an open standard, and much to the surprise of the engineers sitting in the audience at the time. And then Apple got sued by Vertimex, and basically they had to rearchitect the entire system based on you know Rocket Docket Texas patent law. And I believe they've they've gone to court three times, and I'm not sure what the status is now, but it it really hamstrung the roadmap for FaceTime. Like, it's years later, and we have FaceTime audio now, but we don't have FaceTime conference calls, and there's a whole right. sorts of really obvious features that Apple, just being sued into oblivion by this company, has not been able to roll out. Um, and the, the technology behind 
Duo is super interesting to me, and they're using WebRTC. I think that's the, what, what they're doing, and the way that they're implementing it, really, really interesting. But it's it, it'll need to evolve too. And like Skype has got all these features, and Hangouts has conference calls. And I, I'm not sure what the exact difference is why they don't get sued the way that Apple has, but it it, it really does sort of open up that that sort of cross platform dynamic that you want from services like these. Um, yeah, definitely. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of uh, uptake it gets. Uh, I kind of salute them. I feel like these are focused apps, and the point is very clear. And it's you know sort of the opposite of um, what was that 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 thing that Google built a couple years ago, and it, it eventually disappeared. But it was like Wave. Yeah, that's it. Google Wave. Yeah. Right. It's the opposite of Wave. It's the antithesis, yeah. where Wave was so nebulous and so grandiose in its ambitions that it they lost the point of, hey, I'm looking at this thing and I just don't get it. I, I mean, It was like, like WikiChat. It was very right. strange. It was super ambitious, but it really was not a good product. I mean, it was a fascinating like research endeavor, but it was just nowhere near as cohesive as a product needs to be. Whereas these new apps are so super focused. Okay, it's it's uh, you know, it's messaging. Oh, and it's, you know, video uh, you know, it's yeah. like FaceTime. Yeah. They're almost like unitaskers, and you know, Apple uh, again famously never put FaceTime on Android, and people still want iMessage on Android. And you know, Apple historically has not been great at services and not been great at cross-platform apps. So wanting those two things together uh, is a curious choice. You know, when, when you hear people complain about it, uh, Google has been really good about putting apps on iOS, and there's profound business reasons for why they do that. But their apps have not been great on iOS from the design where they insist on making them very Android-like, you know, with Roboto and with a lot of those and the hamburger buttons to the performance on like Hangouts. Hangouts has gotten better, but Hangouts was a dumpster fire for many, for, for far too long. So a, having these stripped down apps could mean that they're actually decent apps on iOS. And then you saw, you solve that cross-platform problem. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, but again, later this summer, not, not available now. No. Um, what else do we have here? We got an Android N they announced. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to let the internet name it? I think that was the general. Yeah, that seems weird. I, I don't know yeah. what the, the, the – I don't know. It's, it seems pretty stupid to me. I'm, I'm guessing that they already have a name and that they're just saying that they're letting the internet name it. Yeah, Nutella or Nanaimo no, they can't, or they can't or, use Nutella though. It's a it's a trademark. And there's well, they use KitKat. They came to a license agreement to use oh, KitKat. Well, maybe yeah. So maybe that's what they'll do. Maybe they'll uh, you know pay pay the Nutella Nutella people, or just go with nougat. You know, screw it. We're going with nougat. Um, I'm trying to think what uh, from the Android end. I have my notes here. I, uh, the one thing that was interesting to me, the most interesting thing that they showed were these. I forget what they call it, but it's like instant app something. Yeah, where, so it's basically streaming apps. Yeah, and that that if you architect your Android app the way that you know it's this is a new a new thing, but if you architect you you can divide your app up into slices and you know more or less componentize your app it can load just the component that it needs to do something and will more or less load it like a web page so it'll just load right over the air and just all of a sudden you're in the app but it hasn't downloaded the entire app it's just a, a you know the piece that it needs to do a thing so maybe like if you're open table i forget what demos they use but if you're open table it could just show you the screen that you use to make a reservation and you pick a time and then you're in. Um, 
you know, you're in with the reservation. And then if you want the rest of the app, you can say, give me the rest of the app, and then it'll download the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to me because a lot of us have been there where we want, we're out, we're traveling, maybe we're roaming, uh, we have a poor connection, we want to do something, but we just don't happen to have the app installed. And you go to the app store and it's, you, know, you have one bar and you're trying to download it. And you're just watching the thing try to turn. And you just wish you'd had that app installed. You'd remember to do it at the hotel on Wi-Fi. And it's, so it, it is an absolute problem. But to me, the bigger picture that here is that we've been seeing for a while, and you've been talking about this for a long time, how there used to be websites and then just things started happening over HTTP and they became web services and you had APIs and endpoints and maybe they would show up on the web, but maybe they'd show up on apps or maybe they would service in some other type of client. Uh, and it, it really changed the fundamental meaning of what it meant to be a web service. And now that's been happening with apps. And we saw it with extensibility on iOS, where previously you had to you know, take a photo, go out to a photo app, make an edit, go to another photo app, make an edit, go back to you know, maybe go to Pinterest or to Tumblr and share it. And it was super inconvenient, but you went to all these different destination apps where now, thanks to extensibility, you just pull out the features of an app. You don't ever, I've, I use pCalc in Shade now. I never go to the pCalc app. I, I share to social networks using the share sheet. I never actually launched social network apps. And that has profound meaning to, to the brands of those apps because they no longer control those experiences. And, you know, maybe it'll show up on my watch or on my or Overcast might be on my CarPlay dashboard. And the logic and the interface layers are totally decoupled. And the binary has been separated out into all these features. And now these features are being streamed, you know, at least in Google's world, it's being streamed back almost like like web services. And it makes you really question what an app will be, you know, never mind five years from now but two or three years from now and what that means for developers and for services it, it's fascinating to me it's a really neat trick i'm not quite sure if it's a good idea or not like is it something apple would do i don't know because apple is pretty because it doesn't even ask you if you want the app it just all of a sudden you're in it like the, in the same way that when you tap a url it just takes you to the web page this you tap a url and it, it, if the you know it's sort of like the way that um you know, like with like Twitter, the Twitter app mm -hmm. can say, hey, I own the Twitter.com domain name. So now let the user choose whether tapping a, a tweet URL takes you to the web page or opens the Twitter app right to the tweet. So that's what this is doing on Android, except it's letting you run apps that you haven't even installed yet. I don't think Apple would allow that, even not the technology behind it aside. I just don't think Apple would do it because they don't want to they're they're so conservative about letting native software run on the device yeah like the google approach almost seemed like feature caching like you're going out grabbing a bit of a of a web page treating it a bit like an app so it performs better or maybe it has advantages or access that a, a web page wouldn't get um and that's true apple I, one of the Every year there's a technology that fascinates me in, in WWDC, and two years ago it was extensibility. And last year it was all the, the app thinning stuff, the app slicing and on-demand resources, because we, we're starting to see that. Like You don't have to download everything, every iPad version of the interface just to get the iPhone app, and you don't have to download the 32-bit if you're running a 64-bit device, and you don't have to download 10 levels if all you need is one. And you start to think about that, like on an Apple TV, where if your kid is playing and you don't ever want them to see a dialogue that says, you're out of space, please go delete something, because that's just a terrible experience. So it's handling all of that stuff dynamically in the background. And even multitasking now is just-in-time multitasking. It's not the old concept of multitasking anymore. And this is becoming almost like a real-time world where you don't have to preload a bunch of apps and you can have a bunch of features. And I agree with you. I don't think Apple would do it in this way, but I think extensibility and the way they, the creative ways they've been using it, and it's, inter, it's under pining a lot of technologies in iOS 9, like the, 
the, the game recording, uh, for example, is run through an extension so that the game has no idea what you're recording and no access to your movie. But that could easily be split out into a separate, separate screen recording, uh, recording functionality. I think that's that, that sort of that future that we're going to where we're not going to be bound by these binary blobs on our screens anymore. Yeah. Here's, I, here, I found it in my notes. It's called Android Instant Apps. Yeah. And I, one of the things that's interesting about me is just the big picture that it is a f- full embrace of the native app as an important thing by Google who's known as a web company. Yes. Um, uh, it, it's just, to me, it's a tacit acknowledgement that, that native apps are better than web apps. Because this is a way that native apps are getting a lot more webby, it, it, to put it one way, where you don't, it, the same way that you don't have to download, you don't install a web page. You just go to the URL and it loads. This is the same thing. It's, you don't have to worry about installing an app. You just tap a URL and, and a part of the app just instantly loads. And it's an instant, you know, to me, it's just tacit acknowledgement that native apps are superior on, especially on, on, uh, uh, mobile devices. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if they announced it, but I think there was that whole thing about Android apps on Chrome as well. And, you know, what does that mean? Because Chrome to me was like the most Google of operating system. It was a cloud first web centric operating system, but you start running Android apps. And what does that mean about the future of those cloud centric, you know, web apps? Yeah, well, I think it's maybe it's wrong to describe that as the most googly. It's the most webby. It's the yes. you know, and there's a lot of people, and for a lot of years, it seemed like Google as a company was sort of dominated by people who have that. Hey, the web is the future. You know, everything's going to run in a browser tab eventually mindset. And I think that what we're seeing is that Google is that that's no longer true of Google. Yeah, here it is. So Chromebooks will be able to run Android apps when the feature arrives later this year. Um, and that to me is really, really interesting. Yeah, but I wonder though how how well that's going to work, you know, with the because to I, I, it's been a while since I've tried an Android tablet, but it just seems to me like so many so many Android apps are meant to be run only only meant to be run on yeah. phones. I mean, I guess what they could do is just open like show like a phone size slice of the Chromebook, you know, like just make like a a little cell phone dimension window. I don't know, because they don't really have Windows. They just have tabs. Yeah, I mean, there's been companies that have been trying to do stuff like this for a while. Like, there was a rumor that WebOS was going to run on HP computers when they first bought the company, and that didn't really go anywhere. But this, it's, it, I think, again, to your point, it's like there's there's still things that native apps do that that web-based technologies don't do. Yeah. Well, all right. Before we wrap up, let's uh, let me thank our third and final sponsor of the show, and this is Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an automated investment service with over $3 billion in client assets under management. Uh, It is passive and low cost. So what you do, you should use Wealthfront to invest your money for the long term. This isn't like day trading. It's the opposite. Clients love Wealthfront because the automation allows them to just set it and forget it, leading to better long-term results. It's not for the short term, not for day trading. And Research shows that when individuals attempt to time the market and just buying and selling and all this stuff, individual stocks and predicting what's going to go up and what's going to go down, they underperform the averages like the S&P 500 or index funds uh, because of the higher costs, because when you're actively trading and selling and buying, you, you're paid transaction costs on every on every one, every trade, and you pay higher taxes and you make mistakes. 
with timing the market. Uh, Wealthfront charges no trading commissions and performed over 2.5 million free trades for our clients in 2015 alone. Uh, that's over $20 million in saved fees at just $8 a trade, which is a low cost. They charge an advisory fee of 0.25%, one quarter of 1% on assets above 10 grand. And clients can get an additional $5,000 managed free for each friend they invite who ends up funding their account. And if you sign up using this URL, wealthfront.com slash the talk show, wealthfront.com slash the talk show, you'll just by starting out get up to $15,000 instead of $10,000 managed uh, fee free. So up to $15,000, you pay no fees. 15000 and above, you pay a management fee of just one quarter of 1%. Uh, that is so much below the normal rate that you get from a financial advisor, it's absurd. So you pay low fees. They optimize the investment strategy to minimize your taxes in the long run and maximize the, the amount of money that you're going to make in the long run on your investment. So if you are looking for a better, smarter way to invest your money for the long term, Go to wealthfront.com slash the talk show. My thanks to them. Uh, anything else that you noticed at Google I.O.? Well, I, I had this sort of general feeling when I was watching this, and I don't know if I'll have the same feeling at WWDC, that we're sort of getting to this point where we're, we're getting most of the functionality we need out of these devices. And the announcements that are being made are, you know, they're not startling technologies anymore. It's like the first time you saw the App Store, the first time you saw Siri, or the first time you saw... Uh, some of the multi-touch uh, technologies, they were just so different than what we've seen before. And now we're seeing things that are either filling in the gaps that other vendors make that you know maybe they don't have already, or they're things that just build on. And maybe bots and, and machine learning are, are the big things now, but they're sort of factored into apps that we, we know and use already. And it reminded me of the talk you had, uh, I think it was last week, about iPhone 7. And the internet is just falling over itself saying, oh, it's going to be boring. It's going to look the same. And I went and looked, and the last three Galaxy phones all look the same. Because we're getting to a point where we know how a phone should look. And if Apple wanted to, they can make a triangle. It wouldn't be boring, but it would be stupid to use. Uh, so, I, so I just wonder how much of this is really going to be exciting as the very early days, the frontier days of mobile technology, uh, and how much we're going to complain about boredom when really we're, we're getting just exactly what we need now. I think there's a huge chunk of the technology press and, uh, you know, this, not just the people who write about it, but some of the enthusiasts who follow this stuff who have a just a childlike attention span and a need yes. for novelty uh, that is has bears no relation to the general public, and it's and they miss the forest for the trees, really, because it's there's so much that is interesting on these devices if you dig into them and get into the details. And so many people just want to here, just show me what it looks like, and let me see if it looks new or not. And if it doesn't, then it's boring, and it's just absurd. And other products aren't like that. This is a sign that it's. And of course, there was in the early years that, the, of course, the iPhone changed more dramatically mm -hmm. in the first five years. You know, when it would go from like the the 3GS to the iPhone 4. I mean, it was a huge, really dramatic. Just look at the device physical change. It went from non-retina to retina. The went to a flat back with the the you know, the antenna on the outside of the sides. Well, it's, we're not going to see changes like that anymore because it's becoming closer to, you know, 
they've they've gotten it down and they know what form factor it wants to be. And just look at like the car industry. Like um, you know, nobody the new Porsche 911 comes out and yeah. nobody nobody who follows cars says, "Oh my god, it looks just like last year's 911." It's <laughs> it's uh it's ridiculous and when somebody like BlackBerry did the BlackBerry Passport, which was a big square phone, and a bunch of people said, "Oh, BlackBerry is willing to take risks. It looks different." And then nobody bought it and nobody used it because right. we 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 say we want these things, but we don't. It's like why McDonald's is so popular. And the thing that's you know, Apple, of course, they're working on phones that have a, a higher screen to to casing ratio, and you know, and they'll ship them eventually. But you read some of the articles, and they're just like delete the be- the bezels and double size the battery, and that's not what Apple has to do to be a successful iPhone seven. And then you open up iFixit, and you you show them all the technology in this phone, and you're like, you what do you want them to do again? Yeah, just cut off the bezels on the top and bottom. Okay, but. What about these parts of the phone? Where are they going to go? Like, are you, are you chopping off all the all the battery that's in there and all the sensors that are in there? Are you going to compact them down, just push them, and hope that they, they somehow fit in anyway? It, it, these aren't rational, well thought out arguments that are being made. They're sort of very emotional um, and very like superficial. And and I'm wondering how much we're going to have to put up with that, frankly, because I'm I'm not looking forward to September. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know either. And it is if. If the iPhone, I don't want to get lost in the woods on iPhone Seven speculation, but if it's true as widely leaked by so far by the you know the the things that have leaked out of the supply chain, that the iPhone, the next iPhone, I, I'm not, I you know we keep calling it the Seven. I don't know that they're going to yeah. call it the iPhone Seven, especially if it does look so similar to the iPhone Six and Success. But if it does largely look like the Six and Success. Um, it will be new because this will be the first time they've stuck with a general form factor for three products, you know, mm-hmm. three years in a row. So that is new territory. But um, I really do think it's it, it over every single year. People, I, every every year there's an S. Every one of the S years so far, people I've seen people and uh, you know people not trying to not trying to be jerks, not trying to be. Uh, clickbait you know just readers or just people on twitter who say man i don't think that they're going to sell a lot of these because it looks just like last year's but the people normal people don't buy a new iphone every year i just can't repeat that enough and i i almost think that every two years is starting to become a stretch that you know people just don't buy new 700 dollar phones every two years yeah, and it's I, I went back and looked because I remembered this this board now narrative and it was the iPhone five. And the iPhone five uh, rebuilt the iPhone from the atom up. It went to the bigger screen, it had the chamfered bay. You know, Apple didn't have to they spent an awful lot of money basically rebuilding that entire phone and people new, said, Oh, it's still a round rect. Yeah, new aspect boring. ratio. Yeah. Boring, a round rect. I, right. I don't care about LTE, I don't care about the camera, I don't care about the screen being sixteen by nine, I don't care about the chamfered edges. Still a round rect, fail. I've heard this from so many people at Apple. It's absolutely institutionalized in the company's thinking is that they just do they they don't do new just for the sake of new. The only reason they change something is if they're convinced that it's better. And that's why um things like the MacBook slash PowerBook form factor has been so incredibly stable since the titanium PowerBook uh which was like what, like two thousand one or something? Um I mean, it's you know, it's very close to like the nine eleven Porsche nine eleven of of Apple is the what does a pro laptop look like? I mean, and you compare if you took the titanium original, you know, which was the first one that went in this direction, and compared it to today's MacBook Pro, you're going to be blown away by how thin and light that MacBook Pro is and how much 
how much better the unibody casing is than the titanium one in particular, where the seams really kind of, you know, with wear and tear started to fall apart. Um, it's better in so many ways, but year over year, there was never like a radical, wow, they've totally changed the way the, the MacBook or PowerBook looks. And, and can you I imagine think, reporters going, oh, another clamshell, boring. Right, exactly. It's people are, you know, they're just, it's very childish, the, the yeah. desire for radical new form factors. Because it, it's just not, unless you can do better. Um, yeah, and there's so many features that are better, that, that are actually worthy of, of our time and attention. It reminds me a bit of the smart battery case debacle from last um, December, where people reviewed it, and they didn't ask any questions. They just did things like, oh, this this is a capacity as listed, like, we found out the capacity of this battery, and based on the price that other people charge for their batteries, this is expensive. Uh, or, oh, we think it looks ugly because it has a hump. Uh, all these, all these, and nobody asked. Like I asked immediately because the design was really different. Is why did you do this? And they were happy to answer. And I'm assuming they'd answer, you know, anybody on those questions. And it turns out, like you know, it it does things like not making your your phone think it's plugged into the the wall, so it doesn't turn on all the networking features that it does when it believes it has unlimited power. And it carefully goes around the antennas so that the they don't get blocked because when the antennas are blocked, everything fires up and has to use a lot more power to make a connection, which defeats the purpose of having a battery case. And they put the word smart in the name, but so much of the coverage was so incredibly superficial yeah. uh, that it, it, it really embarrassed me as someone who works in the industry. And I just I worry that we're getting more and more that direction. I've seen people with those out and about too. I've seen a fair, you know, because it's a fairly distinctive design, and you can, if somebody's walking and using their phone on the sidewalk, it's, you know, the back of their phone is actually what you yeah. see. And so I've definitely seen enough of them. There's a ton I've, of them on campus. I mean, they really like them. The, they, and these are not people who will suffer poor technology lightly. I'm still, I'm so surprised that they're only available in black and white. Yeah. Like I, I kind of wondered at the origin, you know, like, hey, they're getting close to the holidays. You know, I think it came out in November. So I thought maybe that's why it's just black and white, because they, you know, wanted to make just, you know, two very, you know, diff, you know, to match the front face of your phone. If you have a, you know, a gold iPhone or a silver one, you get the white case. If you want it black, you can get black. And that I, I just kind of thought that like sort of like with the watch bands that they you know, maybe in a couple of months, there'd be more colors. I'm sort of surprised that they're still just black and white. Yeah, I thought that too about the smart keyboards for the iPads that, you know, the charcoal is fine, but I thought there would be at least one or two other options by now. Yeah, I thought so too. It's, those it, are apparently incredibly hard to make. Hmm. I did. Which I is why there's been shortages. Yeah. Hmm. Um, all right, back to IO. Yes, sorry. <laughs> well, speak, speaking of new phones, uh, they didn't announce any new phones. There was no word of a Nexus, new Nexus phone. And one of the reasons I'm curious about that is that they announced all these other things that were coming later this year, you know, yeah. like the Google Home. So even if the reason that they didn't do the new Nexus phone is that it's not ready yet, well, that doesn't seem to have stopped them from announcing all these other things that aren't ready yet. You know, why not just announce the phone that's coming in the fall? So I'm, yeah. I'm curious of whether they're giving up on the Nexus phone thing now. Well, there was that rumor that they're going to switch from making Nexus phones to making, I think, Project Silver or something, which is going to be different. And there's all these rumors that you know Google will one day – like there's rumors that Microsoft will make a Surface phone. There's rumors that Google will make a Pixel phone because the Nexus phones to now to, to date have not been manufactured by Google. They were manufactured right. by HTC or Samsung or I think it was LG. And the most recent one, I think, is yeah. Huawei. Uh, and that's a very different thing because you're working with a partner and they're directing it a lot, but you know they're working at the time schedule of the original equipment manufacturer. So maybe whoever is making the next Nexus just doesn't have anything to show yet. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it, interesting to me. Um, 
One of the other things that I thought was pretty interesting too is that uh, the Android Instant Apps feature, uh, which is you know really you know a very impressive demo, but it's going when it ships, it's going to sh- work back to Android KitKat, which yeah. is uh, what are they on now? Marshmallow L three three versions ago, and it to me goes to show how. What's most important in Android, at least from Google's perspective, and if you're a Google customer, a Google user, is the uh, the Android Play runtime. Mm-hmm. What's that called? The Google Play. Google Play. The Google Play runtime, um, because Google can keep that up to date and ship a change like supporting these instant apps and not have to go through the phone carriers. That's just the thing that updates through the Google Play app, you know, just like your apps. So in the same way that you get app updates on Android without going through the carrier process, the uh, the Google Play updates the same way. And so a lot of the, you know, 60% of all Android users are using a, a two-year-old version of Android, uh, sort of schadenfreude that, that, that iOS users look upon you know, Android as being inferior in that way. It's really sort of not, not that important because the parts that do get updated is a lot of the user-facing parts. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there there are situations where things like stage fright happen, where their inability to get carrier manufacturers to push out updates in a timely fashion is is absolutely a user facing issue right. because your phone is just no one really has exploited it, but they, you know those phones are open for an exploit, and that's not a good thing. Whereas Apple can push out security updates to every phone going back to right. 2011, all in the same day, every day, everywhere. Super impressive. But it, to me, the interesting thing is that we sort of went from these models where Apple was very much a boutique. Everything was completely locked down, very, very curated uh, and very limited. And Google was a bazaar, like it was open air market. You could sell or do anything you wanted. And now, you know, slowly as Apple's beginning opener with the technologies, Google has had to bring things in and do things like app review and do things like take away um, services from the Android open source project and put them, or at least make more attractive versions of, of them available through Google services, Google Play services that they control. So Apple's had to relax a little bit and Google's had to tighten up a little bit and we're getting sort of a much better experience in the middle from both of them. Yeah. Um... There was there's they announced Android Wear 2.0. Uh, yeah, it didn't nothing really grabbed me in there, I, and it's and, and they added a keyboard, which I, I I'm sorry whoever I'm stealing this from, but somebody on Twitter last night quipped that they still have a hard time entering uh, their pin code on an Apple Watch, you know, with just a just a zero to nine keyboard. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a lot of faith in a full. QWERTY keyboard on a device this size. Uh, they say Google's pitch is that it's it you know you you're supposed to use it with the slide uh, typing and that their machine language will their machine learning will will you know be accurate. But even during the demo, they <laughs> they got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like the the iPhone is not as easy to type on as the Mac, but we use it for things that are brief and important uh, that we don't want to have to go back to our Mac for. And the Apple Watch significantly exponentially uh, harder to to interact with 
than an iPhone, but you're supposed to use it again for briefer and even more important things you don't even have to pull your iPhone out for. And it, it's just not clear to me. And we're still really early days. We're not, we haven't had a decade of, of phones and tablets that you know, we haven't had a decade of watches like we had phones and tablets, that what that interaction model should be. But Android Wear 2.0 doesn't look like it, it moves the needle in any direction significantly. Uh, yeah, and with this keyboard, I, like, I, I'm not going to, you know, it's a cardinal rule. I'm not going to say it's a bad idea without having used it because who knows, I could be surprised. But I would certainly wager that it's a terrible idea. Well, you're not going to be writing during fireball post lines. I wouldn't write anything. I'm convinced that one thing that's true is for wearables, the only way to, to get text input is to dictate it. Yeah. The only good way. Uh, I just cannot believe that a qu full QWERTY keyboard on a watch, even if the watch is, you know, a big watch, it's there's no way. You need like that holographic Tony Stark keyboard that makes a full size floating above your wrist that you could type on. I, I was trying to keep track. I, I think every single person who came on stage at the event had a Google or an Android Wear watch on. You, you have to be watch loyal, John. It's just part of the job. Well, I'm guessing that since the Apple Watch has come out, that there hasn't been a speaker in an Apple event who's not wearing an Apple Watch either. I mean, it's but it's to me it's sort of I don't know. There's something about that that rubs me the wrong way. But yeah, well, in, on both companies. Yeah, I think I don't know if we talked about it on this show previously, but we were, we were joking about you know are you going to have to be car loyal because there's right. people at Apple that love their Porsches and their Ferraris and are they going to have to leave those at home and drive like the little Apple Smart Car around and how happy will they be? with that you know and they've got to do it in public the way they're not wearing their omegas or panerais or rolexes right now but they're wearing their apple watches in public yeah i don't know uh <laughs> well that's uh it's 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 a damn good question i don't know <laughs> um now turn that ferrari around sir go back at your apple car and then you can park here uh the last thing i have from my notes was they call it uh i don't know if it was the whole thing but i think it's the Daydream, which is their uh, yeah. mobile VR uh, on Android phones. And there's an API so that developers can start writing their own stuff. And Google didn't announce any sort of hardware they're actually going to sell, but they've made a quote-unquote reference design for how to make a headset that you will put your phone in and then you know make it a, your VR headset. Which and they is, did cardboard previously, which was a really low cost. And I mean, there are versions of that that were sold in the Apple Store. I think I forget what the name of that that club, uh, really popular right. kit, ViewMaster or something, was making yeah. a version of that. Uh, all sorts of people did. I know I have uh, I have a relative who works for uh, Kellogg, and Kellogg even had you know the cereal company even had like a kit that you could you know put together to make your phone the, into the toy the Jack and Box. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to. I don't know what to make of this. Is, is the, you know, it's like, is the phone going to be the future of VR? I, I, I don't know. You know, I do feel like that the whole industry is moving in. You know, like big trends across multiple companies. The voice-driven assistants, which we've talked about at length before, and VR slash and or slash AR augmented reality. Um, these things are obviously coming. On the VRAR front, Apple has been publicly absolutely absent. I mean, and there's no way that they're not working on stuff. I mean, they have to be. I mean, it's almost 100% certainty that internally they must be working on something. Um, but as typical for Apple, they're not going to talk about it until they have a product ready to announce. I don't know. I just, this idea of the phone as the thing, it, 
it kind of works because if you have VR goggles on, you need a display in the goggles yeah. that's roughly about the size of a phone, and a phone isn't that heavy. Um, but is it the way to go? Is it the way to go to have it, you know, slide into a pair of, you know, I, I don't know. I think if you want to evangelize the technology, like one of the problems with Google's previous AR attempts, the Google Glass, is that it was really expensive and, you know, you wore it out in public and it just, it, it wasn't a good social situation. Uh, and things like Oculus and the HTC Vive are these big elaborate headsets that you have to put on like helmets and that's the, the, and you need a, a really powerful PC to run them. And that's just not available to mainstream. Uh, this way, and you know, Samsung did it with the Samsung Galaxy Gear, uh, or just the, the Samsung Gear, I think it's Galaxy Gear anyway. Uh, you, you put the phone on and you put the goggles on and you're doing it. And that at least is accessible to anybody who has a phone and a few dollars extra for the case that holds it on in your head. And I don't know if, if this if wearing something on your head is the endpoint for VR, AR, or if it's just going to become a pervasive layer in our lives that's projected on surfaces in, in, you know, around us. But if you if you do want to get people into looking at uh, VR, VR displays, this is the cheapest way you can get it to as many people as possible and at least introduce the technology into our culture. Uh, I guess so, but is that... Do you think Apple would, would go down this route? No. <laughs> no. I don't, I don't either. I, I, I can't see Apple doing something like this. Although everybody's doing it, so maybe I don't know. I guess I wouldn't be shocked if they had. But a- Apple AR VR could be the HUD display in their car. There's so many. There's so many ways of like we, when you think about current display technology, it, the display technology doesn't matter anymore. It's like my I have an LE an OLED display on my wrist, and I have an LCD display in my hand. But that's the last thing I really think about. They're just they're just ways of displaying information, and maybe Apple will figure that out for this as well. It's it, it's an interesting contrast with Oculus because Oculus is sort of going the high-end route where to, yeah. to drive an Oculus, you've really kind of – my understanding is you effectively need like the power of a gaming PC. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, famously, they complained that a Mac won't drive it. At least right. no standard Mac on the market will drive it. And I, I pre-ordered the Oculus. I haven't received it because it's been delayed. And my friend Georgia pre-ordered the HTC Vive, and she hasn't got it yet because it's been delayed either. But both of those require significant computer investments. Like you're, you're easily talking over $1,000 to just get into the entry level of these things. Right. It's really, really like high-end gaming PC caliber graphics to drive it. But they're off, you know, from what I've seen, I mean, again, you really have to wear the goggles to really get the full effect but oculus is obviously producing much better graphics than what google was showing with daydream i mean i was watching someone put on the vibe and it looked almost like the first iron man movie where they were holding their heads up and the the, the things were going in their hands and the thing was going on their head and the cables were being tightened and maybe playstation vr will be easier because people who have playstation wait you mean the the iron man the one where tony stark made it made it in the cave (laughs) yeah maybe 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 like that that's probably it (laughs) But it just—I mean—they're not—they're not—they're uh, not easy products. Like you got to really commit your time to it. And I, I was joking when Samsung first—sorry, when Facebook first bought Oculus—that Facebook right now they're in a browser window and you can just close a tab and you're gone, and or they're in an app and you can just switch apps and they're gone. But when Facebook is on your head, it takes a lot of commitment to get out of that. They just own that experience from then on. <laughs> uh, anything else from Google I/O that you—I I think that more or less covers my notes. Yeah, I mean, they had a ton of sessions the way WWDC does, and I haven't had time to sort through um, much of what went on. So I'm sure there's a bunch of very small and very, very interesting things that we haven't seen yet. But 
it wasn't to me like the razzle dazzle Google I/O where Sergey is jumping off a plane like we saw in the early years, or or even I forget if it was Hugo Barra or someone else who was just you know slamming Apple at every at every chance uh, on stage. This to me was a very mature, very product focused, very sat- yeah. That's uh, I was going to let um, Vic Gondotra. Vic Nocha, that's right. Yeah, he was the uh, he was the one famously for doing it. But this was a very Sunday Pachar, uh, I think. Google I/O, and I think it really benefited from that. I I like the new Sundar Pichai Google. Yes. I do. I like it a lot more. It's all the. It seems like all the uh, the the crazy town stuff is all bundled up and shipped to Alphabet. Yes. <laughs> uh, what was it? it? Was Google Glass? Was the Google Glass introduction? That might be peak. Google, I don't like the peak yeah. of what I don't like about Google was entirely encapsulated by that, which was everything from Glass itself as a product idea, which I was absurd. It was terrible. It's you know just stupid. It is absolutely a terrible product, underpowered, uh, ugly, on the worst part of your body for an ugly wearable. Uh, technically deficient i mean i've i've worn it i've tried a pair it's actually not that you know it's like low resolution and it doesn't do anything it's not you know it, it, the fact that people thought that was going to be a product was just so goofy and says so much about the people who who liked it you know it's the the whole what's his name robert uh <laughs> the guy who yeah. took it in the shower yeah uh, robert scoble robert scoble <laughs> scoble said he doesn't he doesn't foresee ever not wearing a google glass ever again in his life yeah uh uh is only obvious in hindsight but combine that with the way that they introduced it with uh with sergey jumping out of a plane didn't sergey do it like sergey jumping out of a plane and landing on the roof of moscone everything about that just encapsulizes what i found ridiculous and absurd and just hurt my eyes by rolling my eyes so so hard about Google and all of that seems gone. And no, they didn't ship any of this stuff yet. You know, everything that they announced is is coming later this year. But I have no doubt they're going to ship it. And it all seems to me like stuff that might be pretty popular. I think they're you know, this Google Home seems like something that uh depending on the price, and I don't think they announced a price. Do you know? No, I don't I at least not that I saw. I am gonna assume it is gonna be roughly google echo priced you know or amazon echo priced uh so let's say 150 to 200 dollars, something like that and and or lower i think they're going to sell a zillion of them i can see allo and duo uh taking off and being successful uh and i think android n seems like a nice update to android Absolutely, and almost everything except for Android. And I mean, they clearly said it's coming to iOS and Android, which means, like, to me, they've gotten their act. Like, they they sort of understand now that they're they're a services company, and if their end goal is to be like the Star Trek computer, to be the machine learning, to be the AI, they need to they need to reach as many people as possible. They need that scale. Uh, and as much as Android was an interesting way for them to hedge and make sure they always had access to at least some some form of device in people's hands, they they are really being ubiquitous now with this technology. And and this to me is a cleaner, more focused Google. Yeah. Did you see the thing where that they they added split screen to Android? I seen I didn't see this version. I'm, I've seen various versions before, uh, and including on the phone, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so I forget. Oh, if that's it, right. I did see that. Yeah. I forget if it's a long tap or a double tap, but you they, the the standard three buttons now on Android are uh, back button on the left, home button in the middle. And the multitasking button on the right. So if you tap the multitasking button, it 
puts your seven most recent apps in, you know, it's a lot like iOS where you see that you just choose between these, it turns your apps into windows and you can scroll between them and switch. If you long tap on it now it, in Android N, it uh, split, goes to split screen, multi-screen and even on the phone. So it turns your phone into like, if you're holding it in a typical uh, portrait, you get yeah. like a square on top and a square on the bottom. So you kind of get like two little, like almost like BlackBerry sized screens. Yeah. And they also have picture in picture, um, which obviously is good for video. And that's obviously, yep. that's, you know, to be clear, that's obviously a catch up feature to iOS. But on iOS, it's only an iPad feature. You can't mm -hmm. do it on a phone. So it's, it's sort of a jump ahead there. I wonder whether Apple is thinking about uh, picture in picture for iPhone. Well, on Android, it's, it's at least to me, there's such a like some Android phones are six inches, you know, and, and bigger. So for them, it's always been a continuum, and the line between tablet and phone has been fuzzy. So they really have to, you know, make those things across a range of their devices. Uh, I have to say, and it's one of those things where I don't, I'm not pushing for Apple to add a permanent button on the system like Android has for multitasking. But I have to say that for the idea of split screen, it's a better, I think it's a better interface because one of the things too is because they're soft buttons, it changes the icon of the button. Like it's just yeah. like a rectangle usually. And when you go to split screen, it's two rectangles on top of each other. And so it's very obvious how you get out of the mode. You just tap that button again and you get out of the mode. Um, I don't like the way that the iPad does split screen. Because every time I use it, and I've been using the iPad Pro a lot more than I was for doing things than I did on iPad before, and I want to use the multitasking, but it seems so inconvenient to me that when I want to have two apps side by side, I have to slide the one over and yeah. then tap the thing to change it from slide over to split screen. It seems so fiddly. Yeah, and then there's different ways of switching the apps on either side, and it, it's not a consistent experience yet. I really hope that Apple. I hope Apple is as dissatisfied with that as I am. That would be that's like maybe my number one wish list for iPad for WWDC is is for Apple to have given the idea of how we're going to do split screen multitasking a serious serious uh, redo design wise. Because yeah, I don't think I don't think developers would have to do anything now if you're already on board with the size classes yep. to support multitasking. If Apple switches the interface for how you get into and out of multitasking, it shouldn't be an issue for developers at all. Yeah, I still go back to you know if Apple Watch gets carousel and Apple TV gets headboard and whatever the other board is that I always forget the name for, um, they get their distinct interface layers. An iPad you know could easily get its own distinct interface layer that's better. That's better suited to like the split screen, large screen world than just a, a straight port of the iPhone springboard is. Yeah, uh, but split screen, not picture in picture, but split screen for the phone. I just I see that as a little bit of a gimmick. I don't I don't know how useful that would be. No, and then you start thinking maybe it would be useful in portrait, like you said, with two squares on top of it. But then you start having you know collision issues, and where does the keyboard pop up, and all these other things you have to start dealing with. Yeah, I kind of wanted to see that. They didn't show that. I wanted to see yeah. what. I guess it just slides the top app up off screen and the, if you're typing in the bottom app it must just move it up to the top and vice versa yeah that's gonna be my hope at least yeah uh anything else no i i mean it was a good show i'm eager to see what apple does now at dub dub yeah very interesting it's gonna be a fun it's a fun run-up I, I, yeah. i'm looking forward to it uh renee people can find you now there's a new podcast you guys you guys just started i was actually the guest so if you like hearing yes. me and renee talk you should go listen to uh <laughs> apple talk which is a, a 
terrific name. I cannot believe that that name hadn't been used for a podcast yet. So that's with uh, that's an uh, I more. You guys have switched your podcast methodology up. There's always been the iMore podcast. There still yes. is the iMore podcast. Yes, but the iMore podcast is is now uh, sort of it's, what you. Yeah, describe. it's more. It's more community focused and we do a lot of uh, how-to stuff and question and answer and apps and accessories and things like that. Uh, and then the Apple Talk, you know, and Serenity Caldwell came up with the name. She's fantastic at naming those things. Uh, we had Michael Gartenberg join us, formerly of Apple, Martin Gar- Michael Gartenberg join us. And we wanted to do more of a deep dive. So, uh, And you were really gracious to come on the first episode. And we spent the entire time talking about just the iPhone business. And the second episode was just just on Apple Pay, and we're going to put up, I think, later today, the third episode, which has Horace Dedia on it, and we're just talking about Apple Car. So it lets us really do sort of deeper dives than we are able to otherwise, and I'm, I'm finding it really interesting so far. Yeah, it's a really great idea. And Michael Gartenberg, it's funny because he was at Apple uh, for, I think, around four or five years it was like, three, but yes, yeah, something well, like that. Something like that, but it, it was like the three years where podcasts podcasting yes. has really taken off and i as we were recording the show i was like this guy is great i knew he's great i mean he's a smart guy and i i've long been a fan of his writing and i've you know met him a few times but it's the first time i heard him on a podcast and i thought this it's it's a it's like a criminal shame that this man has not been on podcasts for the last three or four years because he's been at apple he's yeah, really absolutely. really good he's really good at it and it also was surprising to me that as a guy who hadn't been doing it for a while, he was already like a natural. So, I find a lot of people come out, like especially people who've worked at Apple for a while, they're just so good at public speaking that it translates yeah. over the podcast well. Yeah. It's a, well, it's, it, 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 the culture in, inside Apple is one of um, – I don't know you do, necessarily do a lot of public speaking, but it's a very, very uh, – People who have good communication skills yes. are drawn to Apple. It's a culture where you kind of need good communication skills to to succeed. And so it's no surprise that people come out of Apple and are just never been on a podcast and are already good because it's it's a very verbal go talk, you know, and and express your ideas succinctly and clearly sort of company. Good way of putting it. Uh, everything. What else? They they can find you on Twitter at uh, Renee Ritchie. Uh, yes, sir. What else do you want to promote? What else do you got? You got the debug. You got so many podcasts. Yeah, uh, I've cut down. I cut down a lot, so I only have a, only have a few right now. But it's uh, we we wanted to do this thing where instead of quantity, we really wanted to spend a lot more time, and we've, we're doing a lot more editing on them now, and we want to make them as good as shows as we possibly can. Is there a point? Is there like a web page where they can find all these podcasts? Is what where should I tell people to go? Uh, just I'm I should have all of it. I'mor.com slash podcasts. All right, I'mor.com slash podcast and they can find out more renee i thank you very much for your time thank you always, so much always good to talk to you i'll thank I'll, I'll finish up here with the thanks to our sponsors we had uh, warby parker uh the place where you get glasses the casper the place where uh you buy mattress and uh wealthfront the place where you put your money if you're not stuffing it into your mattress <laughs>